One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, the podcast that wields the mighty power of the song story to delve into our guests' lives in a way that normal old interviewing just can't match, at least in my opinion. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest today is Roger Stoley. While working as a marketing executive in St. Louis in 2002, Roger decided to move to Clarksdale, Mississippi with a mission to help organize and promote the blues from within. He saw live blues as the first puzzle piece on the table in the quest for tourism growth and downtown revitalization. Stoley owns Cathead Delta Blues and Folk Art Store and has co-founded multiple festivals, including the Juke Joint Festival, the Clarksdale Film and Music Festival, and the Clarksdale Caravan Music Fest. He writes for Tuoi Blues in Poland and Blues Music Magazine here in the U.S. He's author of the books Hidden History of Mississippi Blues and Mississippi Juke Joint Confidential. And he's produced albums by Big George Brock and co-produced several film projects like M for Mississippi, We Juke Up in Here, and Moonshine and Mojo Hands. He's received awards including Keeping the Blues Alive in 2008, the Blues Music Award in 2009, Early Right Blues Heritage in 2013, and Small Business of the Year in 2019. He's also president of the Visit Clarksdale Tourism Commission and occasionally tours Mississippi bluesmen overseas. He came across our radar when Clay Motley recommended him as a guest, and since I was planning on hitting the road to Texas, thought, why not swing through Mississippi on my way back? So we sat down in his Cathead Delta Blues and Folk Art store for a little on-location song story action. Hey there, Roger. How you doing? Good. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you for inviting me into your fantastic cafe. Not cafe. What is this place? Well, you can eat here if you want, but it's uh, <laughs> Cathead Delta Blues and Folk Art. It is Mississippi's blues store. How would you describe what it is I'm looking at? Paint us a radio picture. Sure. So first off, it's the store I always wanted to walk into but could never find. Um, but to give listeners an idea of what it looks and feels like and what we have here, it is like walking into a juke joint that you can shop at or walking into a museum you can shop at. Blues music, CDs, DVDs, LPs, uh, books, magazines, uh, blues art, folk art. You know, it really is like if you're a blues fan or a fan of Mississippi and Southern culture, it's kind of the place you want to walk into. How uh, old is this building? The building, I don't know the exact date. I don't think they knew, uh, but it's over 100 years old. And um, supposedly the wall that's now to your right uh, is a firewall. There was a hotel that burned and it stopped right there. So uh, there's a lot of records, of course, that have been lost. But the building across the street is 1920. And there's one down the street slightly that's about it's either 1893 or 1896. So I'm in there somewhere. So um, one might not expect to walk into a place like this and see a Jay-Z quote on the wall. <laughs> yes. <laughs> What's that all about? So, you know, I, I'm not really a Jay-Z fan per se, just not my music. Uh, but I loved a particular thing he said. So I put it on the wall because I think it's relevant to what we do here. And it basically says, you know, people think music should be free, but they'll pay six bucks for water. You know, and that's kind of the truth. People buy a latte or a bottle of water and spend whatever, but then they want their, you know, free downloads or, you know, to uh, uh, burn their friend's CD, you know, things like that. So, you know, we believe here that music does have value and art does have value. And for me, it's a personal thing because I have so many musician friends. I'm not really a musician myself and can prove it, sort of like dancing. 
uh, but I have, you know, all my friends are in music and, and I see particularly during the pandemic, how they've been, uh, suffering for their art more than usual. So I like to try to just, you know, in a fun way, remind people that, you know, buying these things does help the whole chain involved. It helps me be here, helps those musicians be there. It helps that label be there, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we'll get more back to what's going on here and how you wound up here. But my last question is, um, when was the first, do you remember the first time you had a cat head biscuit? So what's funny is I sort of heard about them before I knew what they were. It's not like I sort of stumbled on it. I sort of read somewhere about it. Uh, so probably 96 or so, one of my first visits here, I would say. And it's his, how, how, is this a full-size cat's head? Is this a kitten's head? So essentially... <laughs> tell, you know, I, tell the people what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, <laughs> so in the South, it is not every biscuit, and not every Southerner even knows the phrase cat head. Uh, with biscuits, but a cat head biscuit is basically a biscuit the size of a cat's head. It's a big biscuit. Having said that, there was a, a character of a folk artist from up around Lula, Mississippi, maybe Helen, Arkansas, who one time brought in, really proud of himself after I'd opened up, brought in a box of these biscuits he'd made in the morning. I brought you cat head biscuits. They were small. They were dry. They looked just like ones I'd had as a kid, which were not cat head biscuits. So I don't know. He, he was from here, so he should have known. That's funny. Okay, so now we're going to get to the show proper. Um, what was the, how would you characterize the musical background of your childhood, and where was that? Sure. So I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, a long way from here, and my parents, frankly, they just did not listen to music. There was not music in the house. We did have a really awesome, I wish I still had it, a console, stereo, I don't know if it was Magnavox or I don't know what it was. One of those things people from that era kind of were obliged to have. Yes, exactly. A piece of furniture that happened to play music. And uh, we did have a few records, but my parents just never played music. I was not exposed at all. I had friends who I'd sort of off to the side hear them maybe playing something at home, but nothing caught my ear until really uh, when we start talking about the first song here, I can tell you that story, but... Um, it really was just this epiphany almost. It's like I didn't notice there was music is really kind of how it was. Um, were your friends listening to music? Yeah, but I have to say, and this is pre-10 years old, you know, so a little kid. I have to say, I don't remember any of that. I'm sure some of them must have. And I do know that later, because I was always into more archaic musics and roots musics, uh, you know, as one friend once said to uh, one of my first girlfriends, oh, he likes that that kind of blues that sounds like an, an old man on the porch with a broken guitar. And I'm like, yeah, that is exactly what I like. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Um, you know, so I just remember maybe getting into junior high and stuff, maybe elementary school. I remember friends like, uh, I'll give Dennis Mutter a name check from way back, uh, a friend of mine, and his friend Alan Gunther, who was not really a friend of mine, was wearing a Boston T-shirt. And I remember him saying, you talk to, to Alan. He knows what to listen to. Look at, you know, look at his shirt. You need to get that. And I just remember thinking, I don't even know what that is. It's like, it's like I want to listen to what I'm listening to. Oh, that's great. Um, so did you have any music being played around you? Did you play any music yourself? No. Um, my sister, though, wanted to take guitar lessons. And my dad uh, borrowed a uh, guitar from, uh, he, was, he was in the uh, school system, Dayton Public School System. And somewhere he got a guitar that was probably for lessons or something. And she tried to take lessons, didn't stick with it. So then when I wanted to do it, they're like, oh, no, we're not going to waste money on that. You know, we tried that with your sister. And what's funny is I would mess with that guitar and it was I couldn't it was unplayable. But of course, I didn't know how to play. So I thought it was me. Years later, I found that my mom's, you know, after I was in college and whatever, it was like, oh, no, that was the worst guitar ever. Right. Like you really couldn't play it. You couldn't tune it. You couldn't fret it. 
Um, so it really is funny that I have chosen a life, not just a career, my life is music. I mean, it just is, uh, 24-7. And here it is, I had no musical exposure, really. Did you ever pick up an instrument in the intervening years since? You know, you're around them a lot. Well, what I usually tell people is I own guitars, but I play my position. Okay. You know, I'm, a, I'm an organizer and promoter uh -huh. and documentarian, all these things of music, of blues specifically. Um, and I will fool around with my guitars at home, but I, I know that's not why I was put on earth, unfortunately. But you do have guitars so, at oh, home. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you are sort of proficient enough to play to yourself? I can be. I have to say, I have not been playing much lately. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I used to, my thing was really, I would just sit and play along with music, really just for my own entertainment. And then I went, you know, I've gone through phases where, you know, I'd write songs and things really just for, I was dating a girl or whatever when I was younger, right, and, right, you know, those right, kind of right. things. Um, but really, I think I just have this from the inside out sort of appreciation of music that I've been able to somehow work into a career, into, a life of, you know, the greatest hobby there is, really. And a super cool store in yeah, Clarksdale, yeah, Mississippi. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you remember the first music that you owned? That yes. Was, that was ch your choice. Yes. So, um, so I'll make sure I get this right. So I'm not sure I can, t well, I'll say this. So, and this leads up to the first song, so I don't know how much you want to we'll talk about We'll go right that. on, yeah. Okay. So when Elvis Presley died, August 16th, 1977, I was 10 years old. That next morning, the 17th of August, I walked out, and on the floor of our family room, which was crazy white, fake tile, you know, it was 1970s ranch home, uh, was the newspaper. And we used to get a morning paper and an evening paper in Dayton, Ohio, which is crazy to think about now. And the morning paper said, the king is dead at 42. In fact, I get emotional standing here. I'm getting emotional just thinking about that. And there was a picture of him, but it was a later picture. You know, it wasn't looking as cool and rhinestones, whatever, but I'm like, what is that? You know, I, I just didn't understand what it meant, except there's a guy holding a guitar wearing crazy clothing and it says the king is dead. So suddenly, like, I started listening and, you know, Elvis, even in Dayton, Ohio, was on the radio, on the PA system in the mall. His movies and concerts were on TV. The newspapers, and I know because I still have them somewhere, um, that entire week he was on the front page of the Dayton newspaper in Dayton, Ohio, not Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, because of his death and you know there was a you know the folks who had really mobbed the gates of Graceland upon his death for days there was a car that went up in a curb and, and killed somebody and so for all these reasons it was on the front of the paper so it really got me interested so my mom you know noting my interest said well I have one Elvis record and she like pulls out it was the soundtrack to Flaming Star one of the movies not the soundtrack you want not the Elvis record you want but it was like, okay, well, that was something. Uh, but I would, my dad had, <laughs> he's passed away, so they, they can't arrest him or anything. But <laughs> he, he also, through the Dayton Public Schools, ended up with uh, one of the old-fashioned cassette tape recorders like you'd have in, you know, study hall. You have or any something. staplers or anything around yeah, the house? Yeah, exactly. You know. <laughs> so uh, I, I somehow ended up with that. I think he got it from my sister, but I ended up with it. And I would tape Elvis off the radio, off the TV, anything. Not knowing yet if I even liked the song, I would just tape anything. They said, Elvis is going to be played. And so then I got to kind of know his music a little bit. And now I can look back and say, well, it wasn't the Vegas Hollywood Elvis, although some of that, you know, he was still covering blues songs at that point even. Um, it was really the Tupelo Memphis Elvis. It was the guy that was still close to his roots and still a fan and still choosing his own songs to, to cover. And uh, 
So we'd go to Sears store, Sears and Roebuck. I don't know, probably every two weeks as a family. I have no idea what we're buying every two weeks at Sears, but we were. It was a place to take the kids. Yeah, well, that's really what I think it was. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and actually, I'm adopted. I remember one time my dad trying to explain it. He said, well, it's like when we're at Sears and there's those mannequins. So we like we went in and we saw those and we picked you. <laughs> my mom's like, that is not at all what happened. You know, It's like that's the weirdest uh, analogy. Uh, but they had a record department. And I was getting, I was 10 years old. I was getting five cents, a nickel for every year old I was. So I was getting 50 cents a week. Um, so I would save that up. And I don't know what records cost then. But I would buy these little 45s, which were primarily reissues of the early RCA material. You know, they're uh, 56 to 1960, maybe something like that. Um, so I'd buy those. And I don't know which one I bought first. I remember Lottie Miss Claudie. I've always loved. That was one of the first ones. Um, but then also the library, I would go, and I loved the library. And, of course, once I got into music, I discovered, well, they've got records. You yeah. Know? So I, don't, I own this exact album, but I swear it's not the one out of the library. Same cover and everything. I bought it later. Uh, but it was a collection of the Sun recordings. You know, Sun Studio, Memphis Recording Service, really. That's what it was actually called. Sam Phillips Studio in Memphis, Tennessee. They're on Union. And that's where Elvis, of course, recorded all his early material and... Uh, Unbeknownst to me, other future heroes of mine, like Howlin' Wolf, you know, recorded there. And, of course, Sam Phillips, who discovered Elvis, uh, he once said that actually his greatest discovery was Howlin' Wolf, you know, mm. with that voice. Um, but I would get that, and I don't know what it's, I have it at home, I don't know what they call it, you know, Sun Records Collection or something. And on it, some of those songs just really spoke to me, including the one that I've included in our three-song list, which is Mystery Train, which, first off, the title's not even in the song, so it's like, what? the heck is a mystery train you know it's just like huh um so unbeknownst to me then as it followed me through life it's like well this there's a lot of serendipity here because mystery train was written by a clarksdale mississippi musician junior parker little junior parker technically grew up on a plantation just outside of town um also one of the musicians on the junior parker version which i didn't hear until years later is jackie brenston who he with ike turner wrote the first rock and roll song rocket 88 also from Clarksdale, you know, so it's crazy to me that it all sort of leads back. Um, but Mystery Train, just the, the lyrics of it, because, you know, you don't know. Well, I didn't know about trains as a little kid, so it's just kind of mysterious. And then, uh, you know, Scotty Moore, his guitar on all that sun material uh, was just really just revolutionary. Like you could hear where it came from. But again, it was like this new way of presenting it. And then uh, Elvis's voice on all that stuff was so much Elvis. I mean, it didn't sound like anybody else, but it did sound like what Sam Phillips said later he was looking for to make his first million, which is if I could find basically a white person who could sing like a black person, you know, we could do something, um, which is a sad statement on, you know, segregation of the time and things like that. Although Sam Phillips absolutely worked with as many African-American artists as he did white. Um, but it was that combination of here's this kid who grew up in Tupelo and used to sneak across the railroad track and hear blues and every Sunday of course you spent the whole day in church so you're hearing gospel and then suddenly you end up in Memphis and you have access to the radio and a recording studio and things like that you know you end up with this thing that um, you know we call rock and roll although to me you know he was kind of his own genre really just one of those guys that you know we can call him that and, you know, and there's arguments over the first rock and roll songs and who are the more important of the rock and roll artists and whatever. Uh, you know, I lived after Dayton, Ohio, I lived in 
St. Louis for six and a half years when I used to visit down here. Of course, Chuck Berry was still alive and lived there. And to me, in some ways, more than Elvis, he was the first real rock and roll star. Mm. Um, in part because he did all those bad things that rock and roll stars do. Right. You know, he, he got arrested plenty. Um, but he had the lifestyle. He had the guitar move. He had the stage moves. He had the guitar playing. And then, of course, the songs. Um, but Elvis was the first one that, that spoke to me. And, you know, a song like Mystery Train, it still just sort of sits out there. Yeah, it's similar to the Junior Parker version. It's not like he radically changed it, uh, but it just sits out there. It just sounds unique even today. Um, and again, years later, here I am in Clarksdale, Mississippi for almost 20 years now, and how many of the old bluesmen, mostly old bluesmen, I've heard do versions of that. Now, some of them got it from Elvis, and some got them from the, from the Junior Parker song, version, and then the original version, and then others just, well, you know, Anthony Big A. Sherrod, who's... 36 years old now, he got it from when he played with Robert Bilbo Walker, who made it to 80 years old before he passed. So he probably doesn't even know that Elvis did that or that Junior Parker wrote it. Um, so it's actually been passed along as a folk song, so to speak. There's a blues musician whose middle name is Bilbo? Yeah, he's, oh man. I, that's news to me. He was unbelievable. Robert Bilbo Walker, one of the biggest characters, unbelievable, had... Well, he always claimed, well, the number moved around a lot, but he'd claim about 26 kids, things like that. At the funeral, there were all kinds of adult children walking around like, I'm blah, 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 who are you? you know, it, was, <laughs> it was crazy. He had, uh, you know, he had, well, I probably shouldn't get too much in his personal life. He had a lot going on there with the ladies. And uh, he had a couple different families in different places. Um, but he would wear these suits. At one point, he actually sort of decorated himself with these just crazy zoot suit type outfits. He wore a puffy wig on his head that everybody knew was a wig, you know. Uh, but he would do, <clears throat> a lot of people called him a Chuck Berry imitator because he would do some Chuck Berry and do the, uh, the duck walk. Now, his thing was, well, Chuck can only duck walk forward, and then he has to turn around. I just go backward. <laughs> so, you know, he just thought he'd really invented something to go forward and backward. Uh, but he did come up with this move that I've never seen anybody else pull off, where he would be playing his guitar in the middle of, a, you know, uh, actually... Hideaway, a Freddie King uh, instrumental. And he would take the strap off the guitar as he's still playing and then hold the guitar out, you know, Fender Stratocaster, which is not a light thing to hold, with one hand, and he had this whole thing he would play. Wow. And it was crazy. And then he'd lower it on the ground, rest it, and start dancing with the guitar. And uh, he had this particular riff he'd play during part of that, and I took him down to Brazil for some uh, two weeks of gigs, and they didn't know what he was singing, you know, it's Portuguese, but they like that riff. So that this huge festival audience starts singing along with that riff, which I've never, I mean, as many times as I saw him do it, no one ever even thought to sing along with the riff. It was the craziest thing. I mean, I could have cried. It was like, you know, and of course he just thought that was the greatest thing in the world. Um, of course, he tried to charge everybody to take pictures with himself. Uh, so I had to, you know, put a uh, stop on that. Uh, but yeah, Robert Bilbo Walker. I absolutely, folks, go out and look, look for his recordings. Uh, particularly the live one he did called Rock the Night, um, really captures a live show exactly how it was. He was remarkable. At the end, he, uh, he had a lifelong dream to own a blues club, a juke joint, out in the country. And at the end of his life, after seven years of work and all kinds of crazy stories, he got it opened uh, for about three weeks before he was diagnosed with cancer. And um, that was in June of that year. And, uh, you know, he made it till November. Uh, but it was the coolest thing to see this guy have this lifelong dream, Wonderlight City. 
and people can't see what I'm doing, but I'm doing this fancy thing with my hands because it was Wonderlight City. It wasn't just Wonderlight City. And he had thousands of lights out there, no electric, no plumbing. So he had reinvented how plumbing works to say, as to say it didn't. Uh, it was, <laughs> I won't even describe how the toilet worked. Um, it was inventive, I will say. Um, and then he had a standard household kind of generator trying to power the entire thing, the band and the lights and everything. So it was, it was crazy. He built a stage suspended within trees like a, a tree house outside because he huh. wanted to put festivals on as well. So yeah, Robert Bilbo Walker, and one of the things he would do is cover Mystery Train, did his version, although I don't think he knew the title. Well, I'm glad I asked. That's a great aside right there. Yes. Um, what did your, real quick, we're going to listen to this, but what did your folks think? You said they weren't really into music, but Elvis was on the paper every day for a week. Were they, did they care? So my mom actually was a bit of an Elvis fan, apparently, from way back. <clears throat> so she actually was totally cool with it. And the only time ever in the life of our family, anybody bought something off the television, she bought, and I still have it, it's a, a two-record set that had not even been pressed yet. Uh, RCA put it together real fast, the greatest hits package when he died. And you ordered it off TV, and it came like two months later or whatever. And I still have it. It was all the RCA, you know, the singles. Um, but that to me, you know, I look back on these things, and I have to give my mom credit on things like that. Because we didn't have a lot of money, frankly, growing up. And uh, I'm sure my dad is probably like, you did what? <laughs> you, know, you bought that off the TV? Uh, my dad, all I remember him saying about Elvis is when I, I got an Elvis, like a poster, and I hung it up in my room, and he said uh, something to the effect of, you know, there are, there are real heroes in this world. Mm. You know, in other words, to him, Elvis was not a hero, and I was sort of making him out to be a hero, as opposed to uh, my father's heroes, uh, uh, Martin Luther King being probably number one. Um, so I, that always stuck with me as well. You know, there's little life lessons that come out of that. But I know that I annoyed them because... It just must have been horrible for them. I would like, I don't know, I guess it was singing or humming these songs, um, these early Elvis songs, anytime we were in like a family drive to go see the grandparents, and it just must have been so annoying to them. Well, let's listen to that. Uh, this together, uh, Mystery Train, um, as you said, originally recorded by Junior Parker. This is Elvis Presley's version, released in 1956 as the B-side of I Forgot to Remember to Forget on Sun Records. When was the last time you listened to that? Well, I listened to it this morning just to make sure there wasn't anything I was not thinking of, to be honest. But before that, I would say about a month ago. Okay. Because yeah. um, I listened to it as the album, you know, as opposed to just a song. What album is it on? Well, it's the one I mentioned that I used okay, to get. Okay, still that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. But I, I bought my own copy. I did not take the libraries. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> just for um, the um, My Elvis story is really probably one of my earliest musical memories. Um, and I guess it was, what, August 4th, 1977? Is that what you said? Well, 16th. August 16th. When he died, yeah. Um, it would have been that day because I, I would have been five at the time. Yeah. So I'm in Kansas City. I'm in the car with my mom. We're coming. I can remember right where we are. We're coming down the hill to where my grandparents lived. And the news comes on. And my mom, like I could tell, she's re reacting. And I said, who's that? And she said, it's the man in the white suits. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And so to me, I was picturing like Colonel Sanders, right? right? right exactly. <laughs> it wasn't until years later that I realized it was Elvis Presley. And wow. it was like his, you know, his later day mm -hmm. white sparkly suits mm -hmm. and what like that. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> wow. Well, I worked my first job that I ever got on my own. I had one my dad got me, but the one I got on my own so I could... Before I was 16, because I wanted to save up to buy a car, when I turned 16, was working at a grocery store. And at first I was a check, a, uh, 
bag boy. And that was fantastic. You got tips if you did carry out to the cars and whatever. Then they stuck me in produce. And the guy in produce, Jeff something, he uh, was obsessed with this girlfriend who he had lost, basically. And he had all these stories. They went and saw Elvis all the time. Like that was her thing. So he would go with her and he had all these stories. Later day Elvis. Um, so that's about as close as I ever got to seeing Elvis was hearing all of his personal personal stories. I was looking. He would have been 21 when that was recorded. Wow, isn't that something? Is that like would have been one of his earliest recordings? I, I don't really know Elvis lore um, enough to know if he started when he was 16 or something. Well, 1954. So that that's 56. all right, Mama. Okay, yeah, so, so that would have been when he was 19 then. Yeah, so that's all right, Mama was the first. I mean, they I mean, literally just played it constantly up on Memphis radio. Um, that was his first hit. And that's by Arthur Big Boy Crudup a bluesman from Forest, Mississippi, but actually lived in Clarksdale for a while. So again, another connection. You, know. um, you say you listened to it this morning, and you listened to it about a month ago. How do you listen to music these days? So when I listen to that normally, now this morning I just pulled it up on YouTube, because I was like, well, I just should listen to it so if there's anything I'm not thinking of. you know. Um, but I listen to vinyl for that. Okay. In fact, I don't think I... I probably own like an Elvis Christmas CD, but otherwise the, only, the Elvis I have is the records I bought when I was young, um, and that's one of them. How much vinyl do you have? Is that how you primarily listen um, to music in general, or is that na- just for that niche? Right now, like the past, I just think about it, uh, certain the last five years, yes, because I, I was able to get a, a good stereo. Before that, my stereo wasn't very good. I had a better one before that was long gone. Um, so I have like a thousand records probably, hmm. um, a lot of jazz. That's, you know, when I buy stuff these days, a lot of times, frankly, I'm buying jazz stuff. Uh, and it's sort of unfortunate because I own tons of blues, but I bought it all on either cassette or, which is long gone, or CD. And so some of that I'll rebuy on vinyl, but then it's kind of like, eh, I've already got it on CD, but I, I wish I owned it all on vinyl, frankly. You, have, you sell records here? I do. Um, you can't see kind of behind you. There's a curated collection. So I don't have everything, but it's uh, about four boxes of uh, new recommended, mostly blues vinyl and of course i've got cds which have been the primary thing that i've sold for the past 19 years and then some dvds you know how do you get all this stuff i mean are you always on ebay and or do you travel around i mean so not so much now you know local or independent musicians a lot of stuff i buy directly from them music wise same with uh little indie labels um even some of the ones that actually have distribution but they'll sell to me because you know they're a mississippi label or whatever um and then of course, you know, some of the artwork I have in here, the blues art and folk art, some, some folks are local, some are not local. Most of it's consignment. Um, and then I'll have people design, you know, merchandise for me, T-shirts and things like that. So when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? So I went through a lot of things. I was into Evil Knievel, so of course I wanted to oh, be... Oh, Evil Knievel. Yeah. I don't even know. I had the little... Oh, yes, yes. Handlebars broke off like the second time you did it. Jeez, though, the gyroscopic ability of that thing to stay up was amazing. Yeah, and we used to... So I'd watch Wide World of Sports. I was not a sports person, but if he was going to do a jump, they would cover it. So we'd watch that, and then you're all psyched up about it, even though he just crashed and they hauled him off the hospital. So we'd go outside, and we'd get pile up firewood, put a piece of plywood on it, and there were no BMX bikes, you know, mountain bikes. Right. Um, so I had a Mr. America bike, which is not made for jumping ramps, I'll just tell you. Like and, his uh, like his Harley Davidsons. Yeah, yeah. In retrospect, yeah, yeah, you, know, you, you, you watch yeah. the old video and it's like, dude, you didn't even have shocks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's kind of how this was. In fact, so we'd go out and try and mimic it and you'd end up coming in, sneaking into the house to get Band-Aids, trying not to get caught. Um, so once I got through that phase, uh, I don't know what year Jaws came out. 
but I, I wanted to be a marine biologist for quite some time after that. Although I was afraid to go in the water after that for quite some time as well. Right. Um, the thing I probably most wanted to be when I was young was a forest ranger. Huh. Yeah, I was really you in, sit up in one of those towers. Well, I think I just wanted to be out there in the wilderness. I don't know yeah. with the animals, and I don't know. Um, and I'm sure there are other things I'm not even thinking of right now. But those are the things. And then, of course, when Elvis, when I got into Elvis uh, through the Sun Record uh, stuff, primarily Mystery Train, things like that. You know, I did. I don't know if I thought I would be a musician, but I did. I was very interested in that, which is when uh, I dug out that guitar that you just couldn't play. Um, but yeah, it uh, in life, you know, I have just stumbled into things where it just felt like it's the right place at the right time and I need to be doing this. Or, you know, it's sort of like going to college. You know, I, I knew I always knew I'd go to college. I just my dad just always said, you know, that you're going to college and uh, that he'd help with it. And so I knew I was going, but then suddenly the, I mean, you know, I'm a year or two before graduating high school, like the, you know, the guidance counselor says, oh, you're not going to college. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what? Yeah. You, know? you have to do things that allow <laughs> <Yeah>. you. <laughs> it's like, it just never occurred to me. So the you know, senior year was really a cleanup year for me. So I could go to, go to college, but then chick, uh, picking a major, I chose English, English literature and journalism, not just because I was always had been a writer, but mainly to avoid math. So, you okay. know, I sort of chose that. Well, then coming out of college, I'm applying to anything that has to do with writing. I didn't really want to be, I didn't want to be a, a teacher, an English teacher. I didn't really want to be a journalist per se. Um, so I ended up as a copywriter for advertising. And I mean, it was bottom rung, uh, my starting job. But I had just great, I'll call them mentors, uh, people that I learned from. And, you know, I work hard, so I kind of moved my way up and uh, I ended up ultimately getting recruited for a job in St. Louis. It was kind of the job you move for. And then just kept moving up from that until I decided to drop out of corporate America and come here. Um, you guys can come in. We're doing a little podcast thing. If you have any questions or anything, just go ahead and interrupt. Thank you. Um, so that took me to St. Louis. And next thing you know, I'm in the advertising world. Well, then... I start coming down here and as a blues fan for the Dead Man Blues Tour and find out, oh, wait, not everyone is dead. They're just kind of sleeping, you know, below right. the surface. But they're there. Yeah. So after sort of digging and learning and hearing and, and thinking um, is when I came up with sort of the, the mission or you could call it a scheme to get here. And that was to move here with a mission to help organize and promote the blues from within. And, uh, and we can talk a little bit more about that as we get into maybe like the third song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll come back yeah. to that again. I, but um, uh, real quick, while we're still back in high school, were you just listening to blues in high school? Were you that kid? No. So high school and college, I have to be honest, you know, my friends listen to Van Halen or whatever, so I'd go along with that, you yeah. know. Um, and, you know, which is all great stuff. It, it, it didn't, I'm not passionate about that. You know, it's great stuff. You know, it's fun. Uh, but it, it was the thing that you listened to with everybody. Like, uh, but as I referenced earlier, one friend in particular is like, "Are oh, you like that stuff? The you know, guy with the broken guitar on the front porch. Did you kind of try to hide that from them? Or did you just not do it around them? Eh, maybe a little bit. Um, it was more of you just knew it, they weren't going to be interested in it. Now, I had one friend in college who's still a friend of mine, Pat Karosik in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. And he would go to blues shows with me. So um, particularly at the end of college and then after college for a number of years, if I couldn't, you know, if I had a girlfriend who was, you know, was okay with going to see blues or maybe even liked it, you know, but if not, I'd call him up and we'd go see, you know, buddy guy when he's coming through or uh, whoever it was. Uh, but otherwise my other friends to this day 
just not their uh, not their thing back back there. You know, obviously all my friends here are a little different. Seems like there's a kind of a demarcation. Either you're all in, or you, or yeah. it's a, you know you see it in a movie or something. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, speaking of movies, uh, do you have a favorite movie musical or movie with a soundtrack that you love? Yeah, so uh, Pulp Fiction, which of course I thought was a fabulous movie um, to begin with, but just the soundtrack to this day, I'll listen to that. You know, just really a great mix of you know funk and soul and R and B and country and and uh, surf instrumentals and all that. Uh, of course, I also love the fact that it has the little sound bites on there as well, you know. Um, but yeah, I'd say that's one of my absolute favorites. Uh, there's another one, and this doesn't, this seems like a non sequitur, I guess, because everything else we're talking about. But, but that's this uh, how this show goes. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> uh, the soundtrack to Magnolia, okay. which is primarily Amy Mann. And, you know, you got to be in the mood for that stuff, but just the songwriting's unbelievable, really, lyrically, um, is really great. And then uh, I kind of liked uh, last, well, two years ago now, the uh, the soundtrack to Ford v. Ferrari. That's so funny that you say that, because I watched the last half hour of that last night in my hotel room. Oh. I turned it on, and I didn't know how far into the movie it was, and it was, like, right at the end. So. Okay, it's a long movie, too. And I, this, well, I'll say this, I don't mind embarrassing myself. It was in the theaters for six weeks, uh, the theater I go to. And you saw it how many times? I saw it five times. <laughs> the sixth week, I decided to see the new movie that came out. I didn't know they were going to stop or I would have gone the sixth time, which is ridiculous. But it was just so, so great on a big screen. Doesn't translate as well. I bought the DVD or the Blu-ray. Yeah. Not quite the same, but... Uh, but anyway, uh, great movie, great soundtrack. The guy on NPR, Bob Mondello, described it oh. as like um, a throwback to like those those big yes. those big Kodachrome movies or whatever mm-hmm. they called them, you know, back from like the '60s and stuff like that. What made it amazing, and I didn't know this until I saw it, and then I was like so impressed. I I looked it up. You know, they built the Panavision. Sets. Sorry, not yeah. Kodachrome. Wrong. wrong yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> but they built the sets. I mean, there was very. So they did it like the old. Yeah, they tried way. not to use too much CGI. I mean, and there's very little. They built like these enormous. I think they did three different locations where it's parts of Le Mans. You know, the the raceway, the race tracks, whatever you want to call that. Um, so it was actually to scale. You know, in, in the period. And then they hired race car drivers and stunt drivers to drive the cars. So they weren't just a bunch of CGI cars yeah. out there with them. Yeah. So there's there's one particular wreck that I, has to be CGI, uh, but otherwise most of it is pretty straight on, and they cleaned it up. You know. Hmm. Uh, favorite Elvis movie. Ooh. We had a guest on recently that was talking about how there's some good Elvis movies, but there's some bad Elvis. Oh movies. yeah. You know. I haven't. I don't. I don't really know. And, that and well I will enough. say this as well. You know, Hollywood. It, it ruined Elvis, you know, in, in many ways, I think. And I think that's how we ended up with him dying at 42 years old. And I think, you know, Colonel Tom Parker. And then, of course, you had that doctor who would prescribe all kinds of things. You know, he just, that lifestyle for a country boy, essentially, and a small town boy. Um, thank you. Uh, it was just really tragic. But, boy, you know, I haven't seen any Elvis movies in a while. So I'm like, I don't want to pick a wrong one. You know, uh, the first one, which was in black and white, Love Me Tender, I always thought was cool. Uh, mainly because it's in black and white, I guess. Uh, Viva Las Vegas. I mean, and Margaret, what are you going to do? You know, uh, yeah, I guess I'd go with one of those. You know, Jailhouse Rock seems like an obvious one, but frankly, I never really liked that song that much, so it it turns me off. Uh, first concert that you went to that was a real concert. Yes, so my sister, this is just so funny because it's not like I knew who this was, for Christmas, and I don't know what year this would be, probably could have been 1980, I'm not sure, or Christmas in 1979 or something. Well, 
Uh, it was, well, I'll tell you who it was. It was, it was Quiet Riot. <laughs> We're not going to take it. So, uh, <laughs> well, that was Twisted Sister. Oh, sorry. I think. Oh, yeah, you're right. Uh, come on, feel the noise. That That's was what head. it was, yeah. I didn't even know who they were. I'll just be completely honest. And But I'd never gone to a real concert. Um, so my sister got tickets, two tickets for me, and then, her, and of course, herself. And uh, I think my friend Steve Greenwood went with me. And we went, and the opening act was Night Ranger. And, uh, you know, it was great because it was like this crazier, bigger than life. Like, who knew this kind of thing exists? It was like theater yeah, rock exactly, and roll. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Just completely goofy, really. It came out in 83, so it would have been 83 huh. or 84, I guess. Well, I guess so then. Because uh, I remember that being the first one I went to. I'll tell you, the first one I bought tickets for was Men at Work with NXS opening up their first tour. Wow, I would have loved to have seen that. And I always, in my mind, thought that was like 1980, but that must have been like 84 or something then too. Yeah. Because it's probably the same year. But I actually bought the tickets for that. And uh, and it's funny because I had the Men at Work album. Oh, somebody gave it to me for my birthday. So I had the album, so that's really why I wanted to go see them. I didn't know what NXS was and like nobody paid attention to them. And he's rolling around the stage like Jim Morrison and like everybody's talking like because they hadn't hit yet. Yeah. Which is kind of fun. I listened to Kick a million times. Oh, it's great. great. It used to be my lawn mowing music when I was a teenager. Oh, yeah. You know, I'd go out there and have to mow the neighbor's yard and then my yard and I yeah. just put it on repeat in my Walkman and just listen to <laughs> it. <laughs> yep. Um, okay, let's move on to your second song. Yes. So uh, when I was, jeez, I don't know how, uh, it would have been... Well, late 80, 1980s, I guess. Uh, I had, so Elvis got me into blues before I knew I was into blues. Like, I just kept going that direction. Suddenly you realize, oh, that's what I like. I need to know more about that. And, you know, there was something that ate in public library, but not much about blues. And then, like, World Book Encyclopedia, we had a set. It had, like, one little thing on it. You know, so it was hard to find anything out. So since Elvis wasn't alive and wasn't really talking about blues... I kind of went looking for someone who did. And while I was not really a fan at the time, I'm much more a fan now, of Eric Clapton, somehow I figured out that he was such a blues guy and he would talk about it in interviews. And he toured a lot in the 1980s. And every time he toured, every single magazine would give him an interview. And of course, he'd do them for the publicity. But he would name drop. And so I'd make these lists. And it's like Freddie King, Muddy Waters, Buddy Guy, you know, whatever he was talking about, these different names. And that's how I found Muddy Waters. Uh, McKinley Morganfield, who's, you know, who grew up in the place we're standing right now, two miles from here on Stovall Plantation. Uh, his family moved here when he was two from uh, uh, south of here, Rolling Fork. So as I recall, what I read Eric Clapton say is basically he was, in his view, like the father of electric Chicago blues. Well, that sounded cool. You know, I don't know. I like blues and electric. Yeah, it's going to be rocking, you know. So I went to... Wizards was the name of the record store. I think they sold other things as well uh, for hobbyists, but uh, they had <laughs> records is what I was into. And uh, I went back and looked at their albums. I ended up actually buying a cassette because that's really how I was playing things at the time, unfortunately. Um, but I looked at all the covers because I didn't know anything about it. And there's no Wikipedia. There's no Google, you know. Yeah. And frankly, you know, record stores, a lot of them, Back then, even today, you know, sometimes the guy behind the counter just looks intimidating. You right. know, like, you want this? Who are you? What do you, you know? So I didn't, I didn't ask anything. So I just looked at the covers, and the most intriguing one to me, and I don't even know why, um, was Folk Singer. 
Um, also, it's totally possible that it was like a dollar cheaper than the other ones or something. Like I would have thought like that back then. Um, so anyway, I buy a folk singer on cassette and I'm thinking electric Chicago blues. So I pop that in my boom box and it's like the most spaced out, out in the cotton field, front porch, you know, acoustic blues record ever. Beautiful. And in fact, um, you know, the latter day releases on CD and things, they're, they're like auto audiophile cause it's so well recorded. You hear, you hear the silence in the room kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so it was not at all what I was expecting. So it, it took me a minute. It probably took, but I'm one of those guys, if I'm intrigued, I'll keep going back to it. I'll listen to it and be like, well, that's not what I thought. And then like an hour later, I'll, like, I'll go listen to it again. You know, next thing you know, a week later, it's your favorite album or whatever, because you really have gotten into it. Um, but it sounds like here. Um, again, this morning, I kind of went through the three songs and uh, just hearing it, I was like, yeah, it does. It, that's how I remember it feeling. And that's exactly, it feels like you're out on Stovall Plantation, two miles from here looking out on that cotton field. In his case, he would have been looking at it and saying, okay, I'm going to work camp to camp today. You know, camp C to camp C, dark to dark um, kind of thing. Uh, it's a little more relaxed for me to go out there. But, uh, you know, my home is in the Delta is what it's called. And it sings, uh, basically the song is about him being up in Chicago where he migrated to during the Great Migration to escape plantation work and to try to become a musician. Um, and it talks about coming back down here and going out on that, he just says Farmer's Road or Farmer's Row. I never understood what he was exactly what he was saying, but out on Stovall. And it's just so, it just feels like here. As a side benefit, um, it's probably the first time I heard Buddy Guy as well, because he plays second guitar. He was just a super young man. This is 1964, I think. And uh, Buddy was born, I think, in 36, maybe. So, I mean, he was a young man, and... Uh, Basically, as Muddy told, or maybe Buddy tells the story now, um, you know, Chess Records, the Chess Brothers, wanted Muddy to do an acoustic album because there was this folk music boom going on where college kids were buying this folk music. So you didn't own like, that Bob Dylan money. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so they're like, you know, Muddy's kind of like, what? You want me to play that old, you know? And it's like, well, I can do it, you know? So he, and he's like, well, they said to him, well, Brink, go get, you know, an old guitar player to play with you and, you know, really go back and get it. And so he brings in this kid and, you know, they're like, what's this? And he's like, no, he can do it. Trust me. Um, and he does. It, it's really, it's a real, there's a lot of space between what's going on. It's not like modern music. Things are all like crammed together and so compressed. Um, you know, if people have not been to Mississippi, the Delta in particular, or not seen a cotton field firsthand, you know, play My Home is in the Delta, you know, and really listen to it, maybe in a dark room. And you can kind of just feel what it's like here. Everything's a little, a little slower, a little more spaced out, you know. Um, another cool thing about it is that in that time period, all that stuff, that song, that album, that song, uh, were recorded at 2120 South Michigan Avenue, uh, what they now call the Chess Studio. I think it was, I don't know, Terramar. I just I had some technically some other name, um, but it was it's the Chess Records building. And people can go to Chicago, and it is super poorly advertised as a tourist attraction. But you can go to that building and see exactly where that was recorded, as well as, you know, Chuck Berry and Howlin' Wolf and Etta James. Everybody recorded there. Um, and the Rolling Stones even recorded there because they knew that's where their heroes were recording. So they actually named one of their instrumentals 2120 South Michigan Avenue, which is kind of cool. Um, but you could easily believe that it was recorded here in Clarksdale. It feels like here. It doesn't feel like somebody 
who's trying to sing about something they don't know. You know, it, it sounds like, you know, I'm, I'm going back home, you know, come with me. Uh, later he recorded, uh, actually, before, I guess it would have been before, an electric song with his electric band, which I did eventually find, the Electric <laughs> Muddy Waters. I don't know if I said it, but this turns out to be the only acoustic album Muddy ever recorded, and I buy it first, you know, unbeknownst to me. Uh, but he, he had another song called Canary Bird, which is super cool because, okay, I'm here at Cathead on Delta Avenue. At the end of the block is 2nd Street. And you'd have to meander, but you, basically it heads you towards Stovall Plantation where he grew up. His song Canary Bird talks about coming down from Chicago, going down 2nd Street, and going out to Stovall. And to me, that's so cool. I work on one side of 2nd Street. I live just on the other side of 2nd Street. Here it is, you know, my first blues hero. I don't know. It's just it's cool to be so close to that. Yeah. You know, when you were listening to that, and I know what the answer is going to be no, or no, I don't know, maybe. Um, <laughs> could you have imagined, you know, the never arc, in the arc that years. that was the beginning of? And I'm going to be totally honest. Um, it just never even occurred to me to come visit where he came from and that came from uh, until I moved to St. Louis. And uh, I know I started that job February 5th, 1995. So I probably moved there about two days before that to St. Louis from Dayton, Ohio. And it was a real stressful time period starting this, this big new job and things. Um, but the first chance I had to clear my head that spring, I started thinking, well, wait a second. You look at a map, Mississippi, that can't be more than five hours away. And here it is. I have all these, I guess they would have been CDs, I guess, um, and records and cassette tapes at that time, all these blues albums. It's like, I should go see where it came from, you know, which is what led me to do the Dead Man Blues Tour that you know, sort of turned into my lifelong passion now. And when I first came down here, the very first visit, his cabin, well, what they call the cabin, it was one room on Muddy Waters' family home that survived a tornado hit in the early 90s. Well, it turns out the, the house had been built around, it was probably a four-room kind of shack-type house, it had been built around a cypress log cabin that possibly went back to slavery, certainly post, early post-Civil War. Um, and that was the strongest part of the structure. So that actually survived the tornado hit and sat out there almost, well, I don't know if it was almost a decade, but for several years just sitting there as a monument to him. And long story short, because that's a whole story, but House of Blues came through and made a deal with the family and put it on tour. Stuck a roof on it that it never had and did some other things. So they but picked it up, put it on a trailer, and drove it around? Exactly, exactly. And uh, many of us, being purists, were kind of upset by that at the time. Uh, but the deal was it had to come back after, I don't know, five years to Clarksdale and go to the Delta Blues Museum. So if you come to Clarksdale, Mississippi and go to the Delta Blues Museum, you can see what's left of Muddy, Water, Modern, Muddy Water's childhood home inside the museum. They build a wing around it. So it's actually pretty cool. Uh, but to have seen it out there on Stovall, to me, like I can just still picture seeing it there. Um, that was the coolest because the cotton fields were just behind it. And another bluesman who I got to know really well before he passed away, Wesley Junebug Jefferson. Junebug. He, uh, we did a documentary called uh, M for Mississippi and filmed him out there. And he actually lived on Stovall after Muddy Waters. I mean, he, he was relatively younger. And he, like, it was so cool. He was able to point out where all the shacks were and the houses. And he's like, yeah, and then, you know, the adults, they had kind of this juke joint. And I had my peephole. I'd look in there and see what they were doing, you know. And, uh, and then at, sort of at the end of the interview, he's looking out on the, the cotton fields of Stovall Plantation, and he says, yeah. You know, first he kind of talked up the romantic part of it, like he almost liked the lifestyle. 
And he said, yeah, there were some days, and he made his arms out like he's a bird. He's like, I just wished I could just fly off from here, you know. Um, but that's, you know, the cotton plantations surrounding Clarksdale. Clarksdale at one time was the, the golden buckle on the cotton belt is what they called it. And that's really why we have the blues that we have that came from here and why Alan Lomax called it the land where blues began. You know, you can't really pick one spot on the map where blues absolutely began. Those first notes were played. But if you had to pick a region, you definitely would look at the Mississippi Delta. And if you had to pick a town and its county, you would look at Clarksdale. And it's really because of cotton. Um, and it is something to see. And when folks do come to visit, and you do need to come to visit in Clarksdale and the Delta, uh, if you come in late September, early October in particular, you really get to see the cotton fields. Uh, but keep in mind that they're planted by GPS now, so the, uh, the rows are perfect. You know, it's been hybridized, so they're all at a certain height. Um, it would have been much crazier looking out there, bigger plants. And if you go out and try to pick some cotton just to see what it's like, it'll tear your yeah, hands Yeah, I was going to say. Oh, man. So it's, it is not a cotton ball. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was something. You can see where, how this kind of a music, you know, it, it, whereas, you know, soul music and, and some jazz music and rock music of the 60s was sort of revolutionary and, and statement music, I think blues was survival music, you know? It really was. It, it, you know, sometimes the lyrics weren't about much more than, you know, your day or, or your night or your family or your, your love experience um, but it was the survival music that got people through well, let's go listen to this and picture you listening to this cassette waiting for the electric uh, Chicago exactly. blues uh, my home is in the delta by muddy waters uh, from the 1964 album folk singer you know old recordings like that are like time travel yeah, because that's you. You know, you're in the room with them. You know, even more so like Alan Lomax and things like that. But, yeah, you know, those those early recordings. That's that was what they did in real time, and they recorded it. Yeah, it's, you got all the fancy stuff today, all the auto tune and Pro Tools, and you know, people recording. Well, particularly now with uh, the pandemic, people recording in different cities and putting it all together. You know, these guys were in the same room, and you know, you did it till you got it right. You know, or to where you're happy with it. Uh, and you mentioned Lomax, and of course, Alan Lomax first recorded Muddy Waters out on Stovall Plantation. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So he came through and recorded uh, Muddy Waters there, Honey Boy Edwards a little closer to Friars Point, and then uh, Sun House up at Lake Cormorant, north of here. Wow. Uh, which is great because in that time period, right before World War II starts, you know, all of World War II, there weren't really commercial recordings. And so you sort of catch that last country blues kind of stuff world war ii happens you come out the other end and suddenly things are basically electric uh so it's kind of cool uh so interesting coincidence so um clay motley mm -hmm. was on this show uh his second song was uh come on in my kitchen ah, by robert johnson yeah, yeah. um and then he mentioned you as a possible person to have on the show um i was leaving to go to san antonio to visit my friend <laughs> milton milty and he took me down to where his office is in downtown, and everything's pretty much shut down from the pandemic. But yeah. he was kind of walking me around the city, and right across from his office, he's like, oh, I want to take you to where I get my hair cut. So he takes me across to the Gunter Hotel, mm -hmm. and we go downstairs, and it's like there's his barber in this cool place that's been there for 100 years or whatever. Mm -hmm. And as we're walking out, he's like, oh, and there's some kind of blues thing here, some kind of <laughs> something. And we walk up. 
And it's there's a plaque on the. Have you been there? Yes. Okay. Yes, yeah. I went there for the plaque. Yeah. <laughs> so there's the plaque on the wall, and I'm reading it, and I'm thinking back to Clay saying like, "This is the only recording of this song. It was only one of two recordings that Robert Johnson ever did, and he recorded it in that hotel." So suddenly yeah. I'm standing there in the hotel where he recorded the song that was sending me on a you know coincidentally here to be talking to you. That and is I was pretty just crazy. Like, <laughs> that is pretty crazy. Yeah, the engineer, you know, and the producer would be in one room, hotel room. They'd run the, the wires basically through the door that connected, and then the musicians would be set up over there in the uh, it's pretty recording smart studio. studio yeah. set up. Yeah. I mean, it makes me want to set up a hotel studio one day <laughs> exactly. and record some people. So he did all the recordings he did either there or and he did uh, a series in Dallas as well. And there's uh, like 41 songs, I guess. Uh, so the whole Crossroads thing. Yes. Is it here? Is it not here? So What's the story? It is where you want it to be. Okay. So I would say it's this intersection outside my front door. No. <laughs> uh, so the you know, the legend, for those who don't know, uh, the short version anyway, is that Robert Johnson, uh, as a young man, couldn't really play guitar and could prove it kind of thing. You know, he'd run off, you know, Sun House and Willie Brown, his heroes, because um, he was so bad. And he disappeared for a year, comes back and can outplay all of them. And uh, Sunhouse had sort of offhandedly said in the 60s when he was rediscovered, well, he must have made that deal with the devil. Well, the deal uh, would be at a crossroads, a, you know, I would say a country rural crossroads in the Mississippi Delta at midnight. Um, you get there a little bit beforehand uh, yourself. You, you know, trim your fingernails back. You got your guitar and you just kind of stand there or sit there and play. And this the legend says a devil figure would basically come up from behind you, take your guitar, retune it hand it back to you and you could depending on what version you listen to either play whatever you want or you would find fame and fortune something along those lines uh, but that you had made sort of this unspoken uh, Faustian kind of deal with the devil where you know he owns your soul and will come back for it at some point um, Robert Johnson absolutely if you made the deal made a poor deal because first off he joined the 27 club he only made it 27 years old uh, but secondly he was not famous when he died um, he had one little regional hit, Terraplane Blues, uh, but he was just not known other than he did travel a lot. So a lot of people in the sort of the blues realm knew of him, but he wasn't famous with the public uh, really until the early 1960s when Columbia pulled all the 78s together and released what they thought would just be one record, King of the Delta Blues Singers. Um, but it sold well enough. There was a volume two. And of course, the guys in the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin, et cetera, uh, got a hold of copies and essentially that's what really introduced that to white America and made Robert Johnson a thing. Uh, what's crazy is how little we knew about him and things had been written about him that just weren't accurate. Even uh, starting in like 1959, I think is the first time he shows up in a book, something like a little biography kind of thing. Uh, but it wasn't until, I'm going to say it was like the early 90s when Rolling Stone did a magazine did a, which Rolling Stone magazine, by the way, in part is named after a Muddy Water song, as the band in part is as well. Um, but in a magazine, it was like the top 100 musicians of all time, one of those kind of things. And there's, you know, kind of far down the line, but there's Robert Johnson and a photo. There had never been a published photo of Robert Johnson. And they didn't realize how important that was when they published it. You know, uh, the guy that discovered it knew it, uh, but he just... Frankly, I think wanted the money uh, for it to be in Rolling Stone. So there suddenly there was a photo of this guy that people had had this music for several decades now, the rock stars and whatever. 
there'd been all these stories of the crossroads and the deal, et cetera. And suddenly there's a photo. Now there's actually three verified photos. Um, the last one came out less than a year ago, um, and his stepsister had it the whole time. Uh, but he's a fascinating figure. If you look up Robert Johnson and the Crossroads mythology, if, if you look up where he's buried, you will find there are three cemeteries surrounding Greenwood, Mississippi, with three separate headstones. Now, the third one is the one that's most thought to be it, but still. I mean, how many guys do you know with three headstones and three different cemeteries? So he's a fascinating figure. And one of his heroes was Muddy Waters when, when Robert Johnson lived here. And Muddy, curiously enough, in interviews, once when asked said, yes, I did see Robert Johnson once. And basically the music was just so intense. I walked, you know, I, I sort of ran away, walked away. And then later was asked and acted as though he had never seen him. So hmm. who knows? But he did technically cover at least one song that's uh, believed to be a Robert Johnson song. Was he that much better than everybody on the guitar? What, what's interesting about Robert Johnson, so the, the, I sort of equate him to Jimi Hendrix of his generation in that you can hear all the influences that are there, really, um, but it comes out a whole different thing when it goes through his prism or his filter or his funnel. Um, Robert Johnson was kind of like that. He really was much more sophisticated than the guys he ran with. Um, and those were great musicians. I mean, the elders that he played around or tried to learn from, Sunhouse and Willie Brown, um, the contemporaries of, you know, around his same age, you know, Honey Boy Edwards and Johnny Shines and uh, guys like that, Robert Lockwood. Um, and then the, you know, folks that came just after the, like, like Muddy Waters were all fantastic, but they weren't as sophisticated. Maybe Robert Lockwood was, but he had, he learned a little bit from Robert Johnson. But you listen to that playing and it's, it's almost got some jazz sophistication to what he's playing. And it's why it was so hard for anybody to, you know, for years to really cover his songs and do it like he did. People have now figured it out. You can buy books of the music and fingerings and there's all this. YouTube channels for yeah, it. Yeah, there's all that, yeah. <laughs> uh, but really, the playing is something else. And he's another one, uh, a buddy of mine, Jeff Conkle, who uh, is on my suggested list of who could do this show. Uh, I remember he told me once when he first heard him, it, like it, it just, it was hard to get your mind around a little bit. It's like, well, that's not, just not what I expected, you know, almost like with, me with the acoustic muddy versus the electric it's like oh well that's a whole other dimension i wasn't expecting um curiously enough i mentioned robert bilbo walker earlier he made it to 80 years old he died about three years ago and he came into my store one day as he often did and you never knew what that was going to be you know <laughs> uh and i was playing robert johnson on my cd player over here and honestly you know those real bluesmen they don't they don't listen to blues you know they play blues they live that life and they hang with blues people so Bilbo does, never really owned any records or anything I'm aware of, at least in modern times. And we're talking, talking, and finally he goes, are we the only ones in here? I'm like, yeah. He goes, now, and he kind of points at the air. He's like, you don't really like that, do you? And I'm like, what? The music playing. And I'm like, do you know who that is? That's Robert Johnson, isn't it? And I was like, I couldn't believe he knew that was Robert Johnson. Like, how would he hear Robert Johnson? I mean, the guy doesn't, he didn't have any kind of players or anything. Um, but he hated Robert Johnson. It was just so funny. I don't know if it was professional jealousy. He was like, oh, I don't like that. But it was just very funny to hear this 80-year-old bluesman out of, the, you know, out of the blue suddenly have this opinion about Robert Johnson. You say he was 80 years old. He died three years ago? Yes. So that would have made him born in the, like, the late 30s, right around 1940, yeah, he, something like he that? He was born in uh, 
Oh, geez, I used to know. 37, 1937. That's the same year The Hobbit was published. Was he named, like, was Bilbo Baggins the namesake for his middle name, and how on earth would that have happened in 1936? I cannot answer that other than to say his father they called that. And I'm not sure it was complimentary. There was... Uh, it was like a nickname. Yeah, and there was, a, I believe, a, I want to say it was a racist governor, but uh, some politician that had that name. So I'm not quite sure. Okay, anyway, I was just, yeah. I, when I looked up the timing, I was like, that's... Interesting. Yeah, it, that is very interesting. Oh, man. Um, okay, so um, what did your friends and family think when you said, I'm going to quit my great job in advertising and move to Mississippi to start a blues shop? Oh, it was a scene. So my, my <laughs> father was still alive, so I visited my dad and my stepmother in Florida first. Just worked out to be first. And I remember my dad's comment was, well, we know you wouldn't do anything stupid, son. I'm like, well, that's a vote of confidence, but I'll take it. Uh, my mother. You're like, I'm not sure this is yeah, stupid. He's like, yeah, I can't really vouch for myself, to be honest. Um, but then I went to back to Ohio to see my mom and tell her and my stepfather. And my mom didn't say a word. She stood up off her own sofa. We're sitting next to each other on her sofa. And I tried to tell her this. And I probably had something I was showing her, maybe photos. I don't even know. I was trying to explain. She stood up and walked out her own front door. She was so upset with me. And I get it um, because here it is. I mean, I had risen to this crazy job. It was right. insane. I traveled the world. It paid ridiculous money. It was stable. I never. That's what your mom wants. Was is stable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I never thought that I deserved what I was getting out of it. It was a great job. I just felt like this. I could actually come down here and, and achieve something, do something, make a difference. Um, you know, in a music and a culture with people that that I just think it's that whole thing of well, somebody needs to do something, uh-huh. and it's kind of like well, someday. Somewhere it will be you, and and that chose me. Um, but it was crazy. So my mother's totally gotten over that and everything. She understands why you're I do on this marketplace and, now. Yeah, exactly. So I <laughs> yeah, exactly. I send her all the things I write. People write about you know what I'm doing, I guess, and being on different radio shows and movies and things. Because being here in Clarksdale, it is the epicenter of blues, really, um, to people that are that do any searching for it. So we get the craziest, like rock stars come through and media that comes through. Last week we had the New York Times, we had National Geographic, we have this podcast. Um, but we'll also, be bigger than the New York Times. Eventually. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard of the Times. Um, but I went to tell my boss. So my boss was actually retiring. It was crazy the, the job I had. It was it was corporate America advertising, and my boss was old enough to be retiring. There was no, there used to be layer, two layers between me and that position, and those had been eliminated. So I was like this young kid. I'd go upstairs by, you know, relatively speaking, this is 19 years ago. I'm 53 now. But I'd go upstairs, and it was like all old people that are running the corporation, you know. And she was retiring, so I had a new boss who was a little bit younger, and he was panicked. He couldn't understand what I was telling him. And then I think he thought, oh, you're just trying to get more money and a better title. Right. He was totally willing Offered to give it. Offered you a total, like, yes. I will pay you more to not move to Mississippi. Yes. And, and so then I'm like, no, no, I'm moving to Mississippi. This is exactly what I said. I said, no, 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 I'm moving to Mississippi. It's not about the money, is what I said, which is funny. And uh, so finally, then he tried the guilt thing of, well, you're letting your people down, you know, the people that I worked with. Your team. Report. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, well, you know, they're going to survive. You'll find somebody else. So then his last resort, he's brand new. He'd only been in that office like two days. He opens the drawer, starts opening drawers like a crazy person at his desk. He's seated at looking for a piece of paper and a pen 
because he wanted to show me like how I was never going to make that kind of money doing this. So then he finally finds it, you know, kind of dramatic. He's like, okay, what's your square footage your store going to be? And I'm like, because I didn't know where he was going He's with drawing it. you up a business plan. Yeah, and I'm like, <laughs> oh, no, I'm never going to make this kind of money. You know, I know that. So that was a weird thing. Uh, trying to quit. They all got it. Right. They um, were all like, oh, Roger's going to yeah. do what he is. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, you know, some were more thrilled than others because the ones that in St. Louis, of course, you know, you're not going to see them as much. Um, but I had already left my friends in Ohio, so that to them it's just another place and it sounded like a cool place to visit. And, you know, I've had a lot of my friends through the years, even from way back, you know, come to visit. And even the ones that haven't really made it, when I go back home and see them or back to Ohio and see them, uh, they all want to hear about it, you know. So it's, it's, it really is like, uh, you know, joining the witness, witness protection program or something. Right. Like you're just sort of dropping out of regular life into this. And you really have to visit here, you know, as you are today, but, you know, to visit here and really understand what this is. You know, it is small southern town, deep blues history. Um, a very challenged economy here, and you've got, you know, you've got the burden of history. You know, there's race relations, and, you know, there's plenty of ugly stuff about Mississippi in its past. Um, unfortunately, in Ohio, growing up, that is all I heard about. Mm -hmm. And you come here, and it's like, well, Southern hospitality is a real thing. Uh, there have been incredible, there's been incredible growth in terms of um, the race issues of the past. Yes, it did take us till, you know, couple months ago to finally change our flag i was gonna say but yeah. it changed you yeah. know it changed and it we are getting there and I, I feel like there's every day there's more people working at those types of issues and i think that blues music and blues tourism people coming from all around the world has been great for our town because it exposes people to other ways of life other points of view etc you know other musics even were you welcomed here when you showed up and said, "I'm going to be the blues ambassador"? I'm from Ohio. <laughs> well, I think there was a little bit of there was a little bit of the record skipping, you know, and like, "No, what now? You're moving here? What?" You know, because I'd been visiting, so I knew a lot of people, right? Um, but it was kind of like, er, you know, wait a second. Um, but no, I think um, the Southern hospitality got me through the initial part of, you know, we're just nice to everybody, you know. Um, but then the fact that I didn't ask for anything, you know, I had saved up money to do this. And so I paid my own way and, um, so to speak. And, uh, you know, I was, you know, from the, the get go, my mission was always trying to do things and accomplish things regardless of whether it made money, which <laughs> as my accountant and past girlfriends will tell you is unfortunately or fortunately my, my way of life. But, um, it is interesting. It, it really, I, I feel like I was always welcomed and became more welcomed. Um, I think I may have been telling you uh, before we got on mic that uh, I got I get asked to do these like Rotary Club and stuff like that and talk about blues tourism or an upcoming festival, downtown uh, uh, revitalization, things like that. So I got asked to do a Rotary Club this week and, you know, I get tired of doing those things. I tried to get out of it. They said, well, we can do it Zoom. So I did Zoom while the Rotary Club people were at a restaurant five doors down from my store where I'm standing right now. And I'm on Zoom. Well, afterwards, three people walked from the restaurant right to here just to say how much they appreciated hearing what was going on in their town that was positive that they just weren't aware of. You know, it's people that just sort of exist here. They've always been here and they just didn't know. It's like, now who bought what building? What businesses are coming? You have music how many nights? You know, um, so I feel like, you know, there was a void and I was able to fill that void. And I, you know, I feel like I'm a participating, positive, uh, contributing member of Clarksdale society in that way. 
Um, uh, you having some live music now? Yeah, so we so actually yeah, paint a picture of where we're at with sure. your year into COVID. So first off, so I moved here in uh, let's see May of two thousand two, and at that time, like Red's the classic juke joint over here, which I totally recommend people go to. Uh, it took two weeks before you we had the first blues show with me actually living here. I'd been there before as a just a tourist, uh, so it was that sporadic at a place that used to do every weekend. Uh, Ground Zero Blues Club was new. That's uh, co-owned by Morgan Freeman, the actor, who lives about an hour from here in Charl- been in here? Charleston. Yeah, he's been in here twice. Uh, both times, I'll be honest, somebody drug him in, you know, a friend. And uh, the first time, I hadn't opened yet. He's wearing a cowboy bat, uh, hat and sunglasses and, like, boots. And he's, you know, he just felt like he was 20 feet tall. I don't know. <laughs> and uh, he looks at me, kind of maybe even over the glasses a little bit. He's like... What are you doing here? Is what he said. And of course, I should have taken it the way he meant it. Like, what the hell? You're moving here from what? But I took it as, what are you doing here? So I'm like, oh, well, here's what I'm going to do. You know, so, and he just kind of stared at me. He was very nice. Very nice. But then a couple years later, he came in with something like Southern Living Magazine. Some magazine was doing a photo shoot, just walking him around town. So they were taking pictures of him walking around in here. And he kept going back to my ball caps. And my store is called Cathead, and it's a hat head kind of stacked type uh on a red square you know it's on the front of the hat and he kept looking at him kept going back and looking at him and finally i'm like well just take one you know it's advertising for me just take one so he did took a trucker hat black trucker hat well about six months later and i wouldn't have seen this but somebody told me and it's like oh my gosh it's true he ended up in the tabloids because he was doing the batman returns press gig and fell asleep you know, he did all his interviews, was tired, so they had these pictures of him wearing my hat, <laughs> slumped over, looking, you know, not great, and uh, kind of making fun of him wearing my hat So in Star Magazine. So I'm pretty sure he never wore my hat again. Do you have that uh, magazine? I have your... a cutout up, up there with my hats. It's, I'll have to be sure to get a picture of yeah, it. Yeah, it's maybe a little faded now. but uh, So he, he owns a club? Yeah, so he, or, co- he uh, co-owns. Is it called a club? What do you call it? Well... It is, it's Ground Zero Blues Club. Okay. Now, sometimes the other uh, historically main owner, several people are involved now, uh, Bill Luckett, who uh, was also a one-term mayor here, uh, a local attorney, blues lover. Basically what happened is he and Morgan wanted, in, you know, around, let's say around 2000, 2000, well, the end of the 1990s, early 2000s, you know, they'd want to go out and see some blues at night, uh, both being blues fans, and it was so unreliable, the scene. Like you could have weekends in a row that had no blues, you know, it was just dying within the culture. And so I'm sure they had a couple drinks one night and uh, said, well, we should open a blues club, you know? So they did. And uh, initially lost probably a good bit of money in the beginning because it's a big club and we don't have a lot of people here. Uh, but Ground Zero Blues Club was, it opened the year of 9-11, but that May. So that's the name. It's a little confusing for New Yorkers to come. It's like Ground Zero Blues Club yeah. uh, because of 9-11. But yeah. Uh, but you'll hear Bill sometimes refer to it as a juke joint. And it's really not. A juke joint does not have a marketing plan. And, uh, you know, juke joints are basically house parties where the owner doesn't really want you at his house. So he has this other building. Right. And it's quasi-legal at best. It may not be licensed properly. It's definitely not insured. Uh, unless you're planning to burn it down, perhaps. Uh, and, you know, there's just moonshine getting passed around. It used to be gambling. You know, Red Payton, who has Reds, which is right across the railroad track, essentially, from Ground Zero Blues Club. He says, you know, back in the day, there was lots of cutting and shooting. Now, it's like going to church. Because <laughs> you know, it's all, you know, his group is older and not really getting in fights. Um, but, yeah, so Morgan was in here twice. And we've had, I mean, I've had, you know, Robert Plant, 
buy stuff in here. I had a great conversation with him. Um, geez, all kinds of musicians and actors and things. The, uh, Jessica Lang was in here one day, uh, who, you know, when I saw King Kong as a little kid, you know, she was pretty happening. <laughs> uh, but I, I did not tell her that. But, uh, but the coolest, actually, uh, my favorite of the celebrities, whatever you want to say, was Caroline Kennedy. Hmm. Because she was talking just like we're talking now, like the most normal down-to-earth person. Never would have expected it, just based on her history and yeah, wealth yeah. and whatever. Uh, but she talked to my customers. She bought stuff. Um, so you just never know. And then there's like Steven Seagal. Not so much, much, you know, just lots of ego. Um, so there was music here. You ramped up to how much? Oh, like, yeah. So I'm sorry. That's, no, I was no, trying that's, to remember what the original question no, was. No, yes. I'll bring you back. No, I'll bring you back. <laughs> yeah. So when I moved here, I would say, because Ground Zero was running at that time, and they were doing Friday and Saturday almost every weekend. It was not always blues. And I'm just going to be honest about it. It wasn't always the best blues. It was just uh, there was a lovely person running it, um, but she was not at all a music fan or blues fan. So she kind of booked whoever came and said, book me. Um, so, and red was doing, I don't know, haphazard, maybe a couple weekends and then nothing for a while and a couple. And then miss Sarah, Sarah Moore had Sarah's kitchen, little juke joint, soul food kitchen. And she tried to do some Thursdays and that was just about it. There was, uh, there were a couple of little things that would happen with unreliability, but my thing was, well, I'll just start working with a red Payton, working in heavy air quotes, you know, helping him out to the point that red is the juke joint. That I would, if he would have music on Fridays and Saturdays every week, I would do a flyer every week just for him to hand out, hang up, etc. Um, I had a small email list. There was no social media yet, uh, but I would send it out to the email list. I would put it on a chalkboard. It's right behind me, Sounds Around Town chalkboard. And I would help him behind the bar or at the door for free, still pay my own cover and still buy my own drinks, you know, just to get him to do that. Then Ground Zero Blues Club, uh, within that first year, uh, they asked me to take over bookings. They had, uh, the lady had left there and nobody really knew what to do. So I not only made it almost 100% blues, sometimes they insisted on a rock night kind of thing, uh, but basically 100% blues. But then we started adding nights. And by the time I stopped booking, I think I booked them for about seven years, I got them up to four nights a week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So suddenly he got that covered, plus Friday and Saturday at Red's. Then Red on his own added... Wednesday and Sunday. And then uh, I had an employee, a musician who moved here, Sean Badapple from Pennsylvania. And uh, I, well, in conversation, uh, I cannot take all the credit, but in conversation, basically, it was kind of like, why doesn't anybody do music on Monday nights? We get tourists who come through who spent the weekend in New Orleans or Memphis. We probably could get them to spend the night. Uh, the mission in all this, I should say, I should have said on the front end, as we say in tourism now, it's heads and beds. How do you get somebody to stay the night in your town? Um, before, people would come through for the history. Not tons of people, but they'd come through the history, but it was a two-hour visit. You could see a much smaller Delta Blues Museum at that time uh, than it is today. You could visit Cathead. You know, you could go to the little guitar store, and that was about it. You could go out and see where Muddy Waters grew up, but there wasn't even a marker. Um, so if we could be the town with the music at night, we could get the overnight stay, and you suddenly need hotel rooms, which at that time, the inventory was pitiful. I know because I was a former tourist and it's like, you did not want to be in that room. Um, and so we just started growing that. And now, I mean, we've got all these new restaurants downtown within the past 10 years. Now, COVID, of course, you know, some of these things have weird hours now and what have you. We've got all kinds of cool accommodations, overnight accommodations, um, but it's all because of blues music. And when COVID hit for basically four years, we had made it up to 365 nights a year of live blues shows. Wow. 
every single night, even Christmas <clears throat> night. And I'd have to hand carry holidays because places would naturally close, but I could get somebody to open up and cover that night instead. Uh, we also went from one blues festival year. We had about 15 festivals of varying size and scope in 2019. So that's how much we've grown. And I really believe all that, virtually all of that is going to come back, plus some new things uh, once we can really get through the pandemic. Cool. Uh, it's time for your third song. Yes. So uh, in 1991, I, I was living in Ohio. And in Yellow Springs, Ohio, they had the Little Art Theater. And in the Dayton newspaper, I had seen a movie called Deep Blues was going to screen there. I was like, oh, I want to go see that, you know. So went and saw it. And first off, I was just blown away because here it is, uh, 19, well, it was filmed in 1990. Basically, this blues pilgrimage starts in Memphis, but mainly north Mississippi into the Delta down to Bentonia, Mississippi. And like all these old, mainly old blues men and uh, one woman that just is kind of like, oh, I thought it all left and went to Chicago, and here's this. And this is before I visited here, certainly before I moved here. And so it, it really awakened me to the fact it was here. So when I did move to St. Louis and suddenly now I'm going to visit Mississippi, uh, one of the artists that was in that movie, Deep Blues, uh, was Junior Kimbrough, David Junior Kimbrough, this old bluesman who'd always run juke joints and house parties. And so I don't know how, but somehow came up with directions to this supposed juke joint that ran on Sunday nights or maybe even in the afternoon, wasn't totally clear, in Chulahoma, Mississippi. I mean, in the middle of nowhere. Chulahoma? Chulahoma, yeah. I mean, a good, <laughs> good, uh, well, there's a lot of Native American Indian names in Mississippi for streets and towns because there used to be a lot of Native, Native Americans here. That's a whole other terrible history. But uh, anyway, Chulahoma, Mississippi, Junior's Place. So here it is. It's, what, five years maybe after I saw that movie, and I'm in Junior Kimbrough's juke joint. Now, I have to be honest, pulling up to it, something sketchy was going on up front, so I had to wait till that went away. You know, it, it looked really dicey. And I'm you thinking, were going in, though. Well, yeah, but it's kind of like, <laughs> well, if something happens here, you know, they'll never find the body. You know, <laughs> is what you're thinking. Um, but I remember opening the door, and I remember it was real thick. There was probably a bunch of boards together, a real thick homemade door. And it was so bright outside. It was the afternoon, you know, sunny Mississippi day on a Sunday. And I looked in, and I just couldn't see anything. It was so dark in there. And I heard this voice, and he said, well, you can come in, you know. And I came in, and there's this guy that I'd seen in the movies, Junior Kimbrough. Um, now, I was much more dumbfounded by things like that back then. Now I'm more used to it, I guess. So I, I don't even know what conversation went on. Um, but I had to wait several hours before the music started. But it, and long story short, here it was, Junior Kimbrough, R.L. Burnside, all their kids, their grandkids, some other local band. They all played one after another, just piling onto the stage and changing, you know, who's playing what. The whole night, the place is packed, total local African-American audience, which the blues has largely died within the demographic that, that you know, bore it, really. It, it's, uh, I mean, you go to blues events now in most places in the U.S., it's mostly, you know, white folks and Europeans. I mean, to be frank about it. So it really blew my mind to be like there and it's like still neighborhood music and, and community music. And moonshine was getting passed around in that plastic jug, you know, all these things. At any rate, by the time I made it back there again on another trip, he had died. And then a little while after that, actually, the place was burned down, uh, a case of arson. But that sort of got me into that mindset. Well, sorry, long story even longer, the record label that had recorded him in the meantime, Fat Possum Records from Oxford, Mississippi, uh, you know, they recorded R.L. Burnside first, then Junior Kimbrough. 
I don't know if it was the very next person, but about the next person was this guy, T-Model Ford, James T-Model Ford, James Lewis Carter, T-Model Ford. And uh, he just sounded like this ridiculous character. And, and his songs reflected that. You know, he was just singing about what he, either what his life was or what he's, you know, claiming his life was. Um, so the song I've selected is called Nobody Gets Me Down. And it's very autobiographical. And it, it seems like the kind of thing, oh, he's just boasting or whatever. But then you got to know the guy um, because it, it impressed me so much, the song and the stories, that I sought him out in Greenville, Mississippi and found him living in a, a single-wide motorhome. You could see through the floor. You could see the ground. And he and his family were so sweet. I and mean, it was just unbelievable how welcoming they were. And they had nothing. Um, but uh, the song has lines like, I've been cut, I've been cut, and I've been shot, but nobody gets me down, you know. And this is the guy that, come to find out, he'd been on a chain gang, you know. He served two years of a ten-year term for killing a guy, but he cut me first, you know, kind of thing. Um, he had had, uh, had a really abusive father growing up. He'd just been through a lot. In the end, he was married six times. He always claimed twenty-something kids, but again, sort of like. <laughs> Bilbo Walker at the funeral, <laughs> there were adult children walking around that nobody knew, but nobody doubted. And he lived such a storied existence that in the, well, he'd always say Jack Daniel time and take a swig of Jack Daniels between every two songs. In the, at the funeral, in his casket, they had a bottle of Jack Daniels, but also they had three preachers. And he was not a church going guy. He was a believer, a believer, but not a church going guy. But they were so concerned being this bluesman who'd done all these things that he might end up in the wrong place. They had three preachers do the funeral, but still had the Jack Daniels bottle in the casket. So um, he was really a, a guy who lived what was in his songs. And he made it to possibly 93 years old. The paperwork, nothing matched. And I think he was probably 90. Um, and until that last couple years, really, I mean, he was just, he was something else. At one point, part of a tree fell on him. So he couldn't uh, couldn't walk real well, but even towards the end, he'd be like, "If they just get close enough, I can get one hand on them. It's like <laughs> as long as I get a hold of them, you know." And and like they took his gun away at some point. I don't know if it was a family. I was never clear on that. And he's like, he'd say, "They took my gun, but I still got my knife." And he had like this, this knife that the tip was broken off, you know. Um, did you just was, show up at his house, or did you have a connection that set you up? So I'll tell you who set me up was. Uh, Amos Harvey, Amos Harvey, who a friend of mine who I used to come down here and look for blues graves and stuff with, Joe Baird out of St. Louis. Joe's a character. He he's such a character. That he basically called up this record label I'm talking about, Fat Possum, and like just wanted to talk to somebody about, yeah, oh, I love this music and just you know, and I'm sure they're like, we got to work. What are you doing? You know? <laughs> but Amos was very nice, so that's how I got the name. And Amos, I called him. I don't know if he gave me a phone number, or if he gave me directions, but somehow that's what led me there. And it was around November, and again, they're in this really horrible single-wide motorhome. You could, I mean, I'm telling you, you could see the ground. It's like, wait a second, I think that's outdoors, you know. And they were just having such a great time, you know. He was playing, and, you know, and then he offered me the guitar, and I, I can empty a room, you know. Um, but then at one point, uh, his uh, kids, weren't really his kids, but these kids that were there, uh, grandkids, I guess, they're like, Let's get the tree because it was Christmas is coming up. So I'm, I'm like, I don't know what that even means. And they come out of like there's like a closet in this, you know, motor home, uh, mobile home. And out comes the tree from last year, a, f a fake tree. 
but all decorated and everything, <laughs> ornaments, lights, everything. And they just plugged in. It was all smushed, you know, and it was like, oh, well, Christmas is up, you know. <laughs> so it was really great. And I remember Stella, his uh, eventual sixth wife, um, she, well, I don't know. She was not known for her cooking, but it was super sweet that she fixed, fixed dinner for us. Years later, I'll just say this, uh, Miss Stella took great care of him at the end. I mean, really and truly, because he was in bad shape. But uh, after he had his first stroke, he always said he would never get married again because his fifth wife had tried to poison him. Seems like a good reason. And so after he has his stroke, like a week later, he's married. I'm like, no, wait a second. You said, what happened? She out talked me. <laughs> you know, so. Um, and so when I looked this up, so it's, it's um, Nobody Gets Me Down is the song. Yes. It's from what, it's, is what record is it on? Pee-wee, uh, Pee-wee Get, Get, my, Get gun. my Gun. And when did that come out? Because I thought... I want to say said, 97. You said 97, but Amazon said 2016, which no, no, must no, be a no. re-release. Yeah, yeah, re-release, yeah. No, it was 97. It may have been recorded in 96. Um, and it had, and I can't, I don't have, well, I have my copy somewhere. I, I don't, but the liner notes were very intriguing because he says something like, you know, I, I've lived in Greenville, Mississippi since 1955, and, and I like it so far, you know, things like that. Uh, but he used to come when I had, I lived downtown now, but I had a house across the river. I was telling him early, maybe 1920, something like that, craftsman style. And uh, T-Model would play Red's Lounge. And um, again, he's drinking Jack Daniels the whole night. And so it's kind of like, okay, well, if you want to come over, I got a guest room. So he'd come over and spend the night. Well, then his grandson, Stud, um, started coming to drum with him. So then it's like, okay, well, he can come too. Well, then, like, at the end, he was bringing the entire family. It's like, I can't have the whole family in my house. <laughs> you it's, were at Airbnb. Yes, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but uh, every, every time I would tell him to park in my driveway, because I, I had a pull-through long gravel driveway that went onto the next street. It linked two streets. He would always park right in my front yard. Because at home, that's what he did, because people would break in your car, you know. Yeah. So he'd always be out there chucking the oil, and he'd fire the thing up, and be all this smoke out there, you know, in the morning before he left. But he... Uh, he was something. He was a ladies' man. So he said. And uh, I got. I was fortunate enough to take him overseas a couple times. Took him to New York City uh, for uh, 651 Arts, a dance nonprofit. Did a week of blues stuff. So my buddy Jeff and I took a bunch of blues guys, and uh, we were going through. <laughs> we were going through Chinatown in a cab to get to Brooklyn, where the show was that night with T Model. And there were two young bluesmen in the. It was like a van. And they're like Terry Harmonica Bean and Lee Williams. And they were just like, what is this? Chinatown. You know, they got their little flip phones out trying to take pictures. And, <laughs> and T-Model's in the front seat. And he turns around and I'm thinking, oh, he's an older guy. You know, he could possibly say something terrible. You know, I don't know. You know, I don't know what he's gone through in life. Um, and then he turns around and goes, would you look at all the Mexicans in Chinatown? You know, not meaning anything other than, you know, he didn't know what else to call people that aren't him. So he was, he was a character. Well, let's listen to this uh, together. This is Nobody Gets Me Down by T-Model Ford from the 1997 album Pee-Wee Get My Gun. How many shows have you seen here, would you figure? Oh, geez. Thousands yeah, and thousands? absolutely. I How mean, many times did you get to see him? Oh, tons of times. I mean, I got the, you know, I took him on tour yeah, and yeah, yeah. I'd go to his house. You know, later he had, a, they were actually in a couple different houses. Uh, I had him play at my house. Uh, I had him play here at the store a couple dozen times. Wow. Um, and then, you know, with Red, I, you know, Red kind of knew who he was, but he'd never had him before. But I facilitated that. So he became a regular playing at Red's, the juke joint. And, uh, 
I mean, they're just crazy, crazy. Some of the stories we can't tell on air. Let's just put it that way. But you could say uh, it on a podcast. Better, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there is no FCC you know. here. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he called himself the ladies' man. You know, he's like, every town must furnish its own women. You know, he would just say <laughs> things like that. Or he'd see a happy couple together. And he'd, let's see, he'd look at her and be shaking the guy's hand and say, I'm just sorry I know your husband, you know, and stuff like that. And they think it was so cute. And I'm like, oh, no, he's just he's, he's telling the truth there, you know. Um, but just a real genuine character and really, uh, you know, he had a tough side to him. And I'm sure when he was young, I mean, he wasn't a chain gang and stuff. And I'm sure he was something. Um, but older in life, he was very reflective. I mean, he really thought stuff, thought about stuff. And uh, I remember he told me once when his last living sibling, a sister died, he said he, he was driving back from the funeral. He had his powder blue Lincoln, this old Lincoln. And he said he just he pulled over the side of the road and just got out of the car and stared you know, out into the woods. And he, he looked up at, at God and said, you know, God, please let me live just like the trees, like I don't know nobody. In other words, he didn't want to ever have his heart broken again by caring about somebody. I'm like, that's just, that's pretty deep, you know, for an old bluesman who killed somebody, you know. You should have put that in a song. Um, yeah, really, yeah, that's true, yeah. Um, so how many of the old timers are left? And it's a, kind of an indelicate way to put it, but. Yeah, it's real tough. You know, big George Brock, who I've referenced a couple times, he passed away last April, and he was a month away from being 88 years old. Um, you know, T-Model Ford's gone, Robert Bilbo Walker's gone, Robert Belfour's gone, Elsie Omer, a bunch of the guys that, you know, we used to work with here. Um, now, you know, we have Juke Joint Festival coming up. So jukejointfestival.com if you want to read about it. When is it? It is April 17th weekend okay. in Clarkstone, Mississippi. Um, normally, I would have all the old guys that are left. Now, this year, unless they say they want to be here. You're not going to invite yeah, them. Yeah, I'm not yeah. going to invite them. And if they're going to be here, I'll do everything I can to keep them safe. But I just can't have that weighing on me. Uh, but you know, Jimmy Duck Holmes, who is... Uh, well, he was born in uh, 1947, so whatever that makes him. Uh, uh, Jimmy Duck Holmes is still with us. He actually he wants to come up and play, so I'm going to arrange it for Juke Joint. But he owns the oldest surviving Juke Joint in Mississippi, which makes it the oldest Juke Joint in the world, uh, which is the Blue Front Cafe in Bentonia, Mississippi. Uh, it opened a year after he was born, 1948. It doesn't have a whole lot of live music, honestly. It was more like people would just, from the neighbor, well, it's a town of 300 people maybe, uh, from the, the neighborhood to sort of pop in and play, but they weren't necessarily scheduled shows. But um, he's definitely worth seeking out for people. Uh, down in Natchez, there's uh, Hezekiah Early, who is probably 84 now years old, and he's a drummer. He also recorded for Fat Possum did a record. He's a drummer, strong drummer, uh, and singer, and harmonica player, all at the same time. And basically has a, a micro... A, uh, a harmonica duct taped to a mic stand and then you know he's drumming and singing through that as well it's a riot i mean and then he plays with a guitar player little poochie who's maybe i don't know he could be maybe 70 or something um so they sound like a four piece and it's two hmm. guys and then his rl burnside up or i'm sorry rl boyce rl burnside's passed on rl boyce in uh como i think he's probably born in 1950 so you know you start getting relatively younger although you know Definitely an old soul, another complete character. Um, I've been to 
he, he used to throw these yard parties, sort of like house parties, but more in the yard, really. And like, invariably, there's a moonshine run involved. Everything gets a little hazy. And next thing you know, people are burning tires in the front yard. <laughs> and then when those are gone, they start bringing out sofas and furniture and burning them in the front yard. I mean, for real, you know. And it's like, okay, why not? You know, you just start thinking, what do I have we can burn? You know, um, just real characters. But I tell people when you come visit uh, Clarksville specifically or Mississippi, if you have a chance to spend any time with any of these guys, they will sit down and talk to you for one thing, you know, post COVID. Um, but, you know, if, if somebody like that is playing a Reds lounge, I don't care if you're tired. I don't care if you have to be somewhere else. I mean, do it because it is like, it's like watching Jurassic Park and walking into the film. You know, these are living fossils. And, you know, to ask some of these guys questions, it's like questioning a history book, like a history book that can talk back to you, you know? Um, and the things, I mean, almost all the guys I've mentioned are just real characters. The things that they'll come up with, you're like, I wouldn't have thought of that, that turn of phrase in a million years. Or, wow, that sounds like a story out of a novel, but, you know, here it is, a guy who lived it. Um, Anybody sit down and record any, like, you know, history, living histories kind of stuff? Have you or? You know? Well, so conveniently, I've written two books. Okay, so, yeah, uh, I was going to get all, to that. Yeah, <laughs> all, all the guys that I've mentioned are in my books. Uh, Hidden History of Mississippi Blues. And my newest one is called Mississippi Juke Joint Confidential. And uh, it's sort of a lot of stories in there I couldn't have told 10 years ago, but I can tell now um, based on who's still with us, I suppose. Um, and then a buddy of mine, a good friend, Jeff Conkle in uh, St. Louis, uh, we did three movies together, documentaries. Two of them are out of print, but if you can find them, I totally recommend them. Uh, that's all I can say. M for Mississippi. T-Model Ford, who we just played, is in that. For example, there's a dozen of the Real Deal guys, and then we followed up with We Juke up in here, which is largely filmed at Red's Lounge, the Juke Joint. And then uh, our free web series, so go do this. It doesn't cost you anything. Uh, it's called Moonshine and Mojo Hands. Moonshineandmojohands.com. Just free 10 episodes, us traveling around visiting characters. Sadly, within like a year of it coming out, I mean, like five people had already died out of it. Um, so it really is something that if you watch something like that and you see somebody you're interested in, just like with Deep Blues, so the Robert Muggy film, when I saw that in 1991, five years later, I was there seeing one of the guys, two of the guys actually out of that. And now, of course, they're long gone. So it's uh, don't don't wait for that pilgrimage, that blues pilgrimage, if you're into the music. You know, do it as soon as you can when 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 COVID lifts. When COVID lifts, which it will. Yes. We were saying when actually with Clay's interview that, um, you know, we've done like 160 shows. We plan on doing this for many more years. At some point, when you go back and listen to our catalog, it's going to be this weird little slice yeah. of like the COVID times. Right, you know what right. I mean? Yeah. Looking forward to being past the COVID times. Yes. Okay. Um, like I said during that last song, a lot of the standard questions that we ask guests, have guests I haven't asked yet because mm -hmm. you're such a great storyteller and you have such an interesting connection to music. So we're going to throw some fun ones at you. There you go. I'm okay. Ready. Uh, do you do karaoke? No, I'm against it. I'll tell you this, Elsie Omer. What do you mean against it? Well, so, well let me say this first. Elsie Omer, this it's a principle. <laughs> yes, this bluesman who made it to I think 87 years old, uh, who used to play here. He uh, one day he goes, you know what's putting us all out of business? It's the okie dokie. And I'm like, what on earth is he? He was talking about karaoke. He called, <laughs> called it the okie dokie. And I'm sitting, I'm searching like because he would say things and like get mad if you didn't understand what he was telling you. Mm -hmm. So I'm just trying to search, like, where's the reference for that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's, it's sort of like, if you're willing to take the time to put on karaoke, then take the time and book, book a blues act. Yeah, or book a I see music. what you mean by you're against yeah, it. You you know. are, you, you, it is a principle. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I think you said earlier you're not a dancer. 
No, and, and as I always tell people, like with you know playing music, it's like with dancing in particular, I can prove it. People are like, no, you can dance. It's like, oh yeah? Oh no, you know, it's the <laughs> Elaine Bennis dance. Kind of, um, okay, uh, we're not gonna sing together uh, because normally we're in studio when we pull up YouTube and it's fun, but if you were pressed to sing a TV theme song with me, what hmm. would be one that you would know the words to? And I'm not gonna make you sing it. Okay, well, uh, let me think about that, but I will tell you this, there used to be a bartender at Red's uh, and Antonio Coburn, cool dude, you know, hanging behind the bar. He always had these little things he'd say out of movies. And one night he starts singing the theme to BJ and the Bear. And I'm like, Wow, I haven't thought of that show I in a long heard, time. Same here. I was like, I'm hearing it like, and then it came to the part where it's, and it was like, Oh my God. It's like, and then, so I tried to get him to sing that one time on a, a film thing, and he, he just denied knowing it, you know, entirely. Uh, but yeah, what would I know? Do you need to get the phone? That is my store phone. Yeah, so, go ahead. Uh, let me just grab that real fast here. Cathead, this is Roger. Well, how you doing? We're, we're going to do a version of it. You know, it'll be the pandemically modified Juke Joint Festival. Well, so I will say this, that the lineup we are adjusting. Um, as I was just telling the gentleman here in the store, like with the old timers, if they approach me and want to play, I will book them. If they don't, you know, I'm, I'm hesitant because of health uh, worries. Uh, my my guess is he my guess is he can use the money. I actually had this conversation yesterday. So what I was actually planning to do with him, unless he approaches me, I was going to go to him late in the game and say, hey, how about we do a live stream, non-public event, and that way I can still pay you. You can do something because really the money is what kind of we can use. Uh, so that's probably what we'll do with him. Well, I, I supply his hats. Whenever he needs a hat, yeah, his, I don't know who drives him up here, different people. And uh, I'm like, do you need a hat? At first he's all shy about it, and then he, take, he takes it. Uh, which I appreciate, that's the coolest thing in the world, I have my hat on, you know, kind of like John's head. For the magazine, um, I would like to be in there for 2022 advertising. So if you want to send that to me or to Nan or both of us, yeah, because that actually does make sense. For next year, we expect it to be you know, the biggest ever based on, you know, people wanting to be here. So, all right. That sounds good. Okay, thank you. Bye. Sorry. Blues Festival Guide Magazine. I was going to say someone from your former world. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, actually this world. Uh, and she brought up Cadillac John Nolden, who you were asking me about older bluesmen. He is the oldest surviving one. It would be 94 the day before I turned 54 in April. And he's just the sweetest. And he'll... I always find it amazing, like when a 94 year old walks into your store, you know, and now somebody has to drive him, um, but just super sweet. And he started playing blues harmonica when his wife left him. Um, he was out working in the fields and came home and she had left me and taken everything, even the drapes. So like I'm inside crying and everything and everybody can see me, you know, it's like, it just sounded horrible, you know? Hmm. Um, yeah. Throw those back on. Yeah. You can hear, uh, you were talking a little loud there for a second. Well, oh, you, sorry. Oh, that's okay. Now you have feedback. Yes. This yes. part may or may not be in the podcast. Sure. <laughs> the phone call will be, though. Yeah, um, exactly. So uh, TV theme song besides BJ and the Bear. I have to think of something that have words. You know, one of my favorite ones growing up was uh, Rockford Files, but it, there were no words. Um, Rockford Files. Yeah, James Garner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's, I, I'm not going to hum it, but I probably could. Uh, well... 
Okay, this is going back sentimental as a little kid, like the Brady Bunch theme. That yeah. was pretty great. We sang that uh, maybe two months ago with someone, and we all yeah. knew all the words. Yeah, that, that's that was the great. sticky one. Um, yeah, I'm hard pressed. Here's a story. Many. No, we don't need to do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, um, if you were a championship wrestler, what music would you come into the arena on? Hmm. Well, maybe only because we just talked about this in a way, but uh, the. Uh, I think what the name of the song is, that's uh, uh, James Burton. Uh, so it's almost like a slightly remixed version that opens the Ford V Ferrari soundtrack. Okay. Uh, one of those Memphis kind of soul kind of thing, but it just, you know, kind of rocks. But I can't think of the, uh, so since I can't think of the name of that, maybe I'd go with like, you know, a Led Zeppelin song or something, you know, custard pie, come into that, <laughs> something like that. Um, if you were a cocktail or a drink of some kind, what would it be? Well, my favorite drink is uh, martini. Okay, gin. our first martini. Yeah, gin or vodka, frankly. Um, make it customizable somehow and give it a name because we're putting together a cookbook, like a cocktail cookbook. Okay, well, let's see here. I think I, well, I, I like, like what I'll do sometimes just because I'm mostly out of one vodka or gin, but I'll do like about a half and a half vodka and gin and just a little splash of... Uh, That's a thing? Well, it is for, for me, you know, <laughs> so about half and half, uh, and then I'll do just a splash of uh, dry vermouth, and then uh, either blue cheese stuffed or garlic stuffed olives. And it's a called and really a, chilled and shaken. And it's called a what? That is called the Eiler, named after my pug. How do you spell Eiler? A-Y-L-E-R. What's that come from? Uh, she's named after Albert Eiler, one of the early free jazz saxophone okay. players. Is there a pug here that I... Yeah, she's back. I can't believe <laughs> she, she's been she quiet. She keeps to herself. Oh, when she doesn't. Good Lord. But when she doesn't, she doesn't. So it could have been a problem. I don't know. So. You're pointing over there. I'm like, there's yeah, a dog over there? Exactly. So. <laughs> Is it stuffed? I see things. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, uh, if you could learn any instrument instantly without having to try, what would you choose? Saxophone. Okay. I mean, I, there was a day I would have said guitar, but it's funny. I just really appreciate, you know, again, like an Albert Eiler or, or particularly like a John Coltrane, um, you know, which if you follow his music, you know, he started out so traditional and ended up so avant-garde at the end that he ended up playing in all these different sub-genres of jazz and never stopped being a student, never stopped practicing. He would play these long sets at clubs and they'd make you take a break so people would buy drinks and whatever. And he would go back in the hallway and sit there and finger and practice without blowing like the whole time. Like that kind of dedication. If I could suddenly have it, yeah. you know, play a Love Supreme, then I, I think that's what I'd go for. If you could broadcast a song into the head of every human being simultaneously, what would you choose? Hmm. That's a good one there. So uh, it is funny because this is three songs. But as I think I was kind of telling you before we got going, I don't necessarily think in songs. So like, Artists, I would say, honestly, Muddy Waters, probably not the track I chose today. Um, one of his, you know, late, early, probably mid 50s, um, you know, singles off the radio, uh, um, you know, 40 Days and 40 Nights, something like that. Um, are there any kinds of music or particular songs you will avoid listening to? You know, something I just, to this day, I understand it culturally, but musically, um, most of what you'd call hip hop or rap is just not my thing. It's funny how most of the music in my collection is black music, honestly. Um, that's what I'm most fascinated by musically and culturally and historically. And I just, um, well, I do know the connections are there. I mean, I can read about the connections. I don't necessarily 
you know, feel it in the same way. I think because of the predominance of, you know, computers and producing and things like that that make it easy enough that an everyman, so to speak, at home can make, you know, music, which is great. Um, but I think I'm more into the musicianship of actual instruments, maybe. Um, best album of all time, in your opinion? Wow. Or maybe the one you've listened to the most times? Hmm. So there are different albums I would have said at different times. Right now, I would probably say something like A Love Supreme or, you know, John Coltrane or Miles Davis, Kind of Blue, something like that that to me is just like its own thing that's there, even though it exists within this whole, you know, genre. Um, But also, you know, getting back to blues, you know, a collection of Robert Johnson songs. I mean, that's a great thing. But I'll say this now that I'm thinking of it. Actually, what I, I play every other day, I play some Charlie Patton. Hmm. Um, you know, and it's all collected. They were all singles. So there's no album. Um, but Charlie Patton always speaks to me. You know, he's one of the earliest important Delta Bluesmen to record. Uh, what would your 14-year-old self think of who you are today here in Clarksdale, Mississippi? Wow, my 14-year-old self was so excited to get a moped, uh, which I guess I still like to drive too fast. Um, but I, I don't think he would have seen this coming. On the other hand, I think if he were able to reflect on things, he'd be like, well, yeah, I guess this is where you would end up, you know? Um, you know, that obsess, obsessive interest in an Elvis for, you know, or even an evil, evil Knievel or whatever, these things that, like, I don't do it halfway. I do it till I have to go get Band-Aids, you know? <laughs> um, you've alluded to driving fast a couple times, and your website said something about having a, uh, you like cars. What do you drive? Well, my first car I bought was a 1969 Firebird. Uh, and that's the money I saved up for. And my dad said if I saved up my money, when I turned 16, I could buy whatever I wanted. But he didn't realize that's what I was going to do. Um, so I had a couple different Firebirds through time. Uh, and I always, even with reasonable cars, I always bought the step-up engine-wise. You know, mm-hmm. uh, So I had this little uh, Kia Sorento. Uh, but it had this little six-cylinder, which... The car really couldn't handle the motor, to be honest about it. But now I drive a Dodge Challenger. That's gotten me, has cost me some money, speeding ticket-wise. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to do better. I am. Probably hard to speed around here. It seems like a lot of those back roads come through town. Suddenly it's 15 miles an hour. Well, yeah, that's the thing. It's, <laughs> unfortunately, it's easy to speed around here. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's really. Uh, actually, when I went to adopt my pug over here, Eiler, who we mentioned, uh, down in Conroe, Texas, uh, nine, hour around, uh, nine hours one way, I guess. And uh, I went through a little town. It's one of those little things like Dukes of Hazard or whatever, where the guy just is hidden in the bushes with the <laughs> and just came out of nowhere. And it's like, there aren't even any signs, you know. So I tried to say, well, I've just adopted this poor dog. And I mean, he did not want to hear it. Got hmm. that ticket. Um, okay, it's time to recommend you three people. Yes. So Jeff Conkle, who I've mentioned a couple times, uh, lives up in St. Louis. I used to live in St. Louis. We both love music, didn't know each other. At some of the same shows, didn't know each other. I met him in my store. Um, I'm going to say he was going through a midlife crisis. That may or may not be true, but whatever. He just came down here and just started spending more time. And it was around the time that I had recorded a, an album on Big George Brock. So it was 2005, called Club Caravan, out of print now. Um, so I got George a show at Paul Monkey's Lounge, the last of the rural juke joints. That's a whole story unto itself. And it wasn't a particularly good show, I'll be honest. Uh, but the place was awesome and Jeff came in he talks to me and uh maybe that's actually where he met me I don't know that or here in my store 
but he bought the CD because he's trying to be nice. He'd talk to me, like, oh, I'll buy the CD. How good can that be? You know, I just met this <laughs> bozo, you know. So he gets it. He liked it. And of course, he'd had a few drinks, I'm sure, when he made the decision to start a record label. But he's like, well, that idiot can make a record. I can make a record. I love blues. I'm going to start recording blues, guys. So he sort of got into the industry, so to speak, that way. You know, again, finding the quickest way to lose some money and recorded a whole series of really great albums on a real deal bluesman. Um, on top of that, he has just a massive, unfortunately, it's mostly CDs, although he's gotten a lot more into vinyl as it's come back. But a massive music collection, and he is into everything really. Um, blues is just. And he's still in St. Louis. So he's in St. Louis, and uh, he's become a school teacher uh, in a challenged district. Uh, but he was a PR guy before that. Um, the second guy, uh, I think this is the order I did them in, is Scott Beretta. And Scott Beretta is one of. He lives over in Oxford, Mississippi, and I used to meet him, or I met him. I used to run into him when I would come down here as a tourist in the 1990s because he'd beat all the blues events. Uh, at the time, he probably was uh, editor of Living Blues Magazine. He'd done uh, editing for a blues magazine overseas at one time. And he has written about half the content of the Mississippi Blues Trail markers, which if people don't know about the Mississippi Blues Trail, go to msbluestrail.org, and there's over 200 markers, most of them spread throughout Mississippi, most of them in the Delta, and the biggest group of them in and around Clarksdale uh, that really tell it's like the world's largest outdoor museum in Mm. some ways really fabulous but he's written about half that content and he is not just in the blues but obviously that's his specialty Uh, but he also has a great record collection he does the highway 61 radio show every sunday on uh public radio out of mississippi so totally recommend him and then the third guy is the most the biggest character of all three of them and that is theo dasbach and he is from the Netherlands. And when he was a young man, the, the music bug hit him early. Like the early Rolling Stones and the Beatles, when they hit, when he first heard them in the Netherlands, like that is what he wanted to be involved with. So he, like, he was in a, you know, a local little band when he was a kid. He collected records. He didn't really get to see a whole lot of those guys. I just don't know if they came through there much where he lived. Uh, but he was obsessed with it. Eventually in life, he becomes like a, a businessman. He was technically a lawyer, although he wasn't you know didn't do that as the job and uh, so he was able to make good money and travel and so he started collecting you know collecting music memorabilia rock and roll anything related to rock and roll including blues and uh, he ended up getting sort of the last job he had before he retired was in New York City so he spent a lot of time there got to see a lot of great music but he kept coming and visiting Memphis and Mississippi, and in fact, came through in the early, probably around 1980, early 80s, in through Clarksdale um, as well. And he ended up saying to himself, "You know what? When I retire, I'm going to move to Memphis." So he bought a house there even before he retired. Uh, but then he came through my store. I had not met him at this point. He comes through my store. Uh, well, the first year I opened, so 2002, and I do not remember the conversation. But he came through my store. I want to say it was two years later. And he goes, you're still here. And I'm like, yeah, who are you? You know, I didn't remember. <laughs> and uh, basically, he's like, I can already tell. You know, I have told him these things that I wanted to do and I thought we could do, et cetera. He's like, I can, I can see some differences. And wait, there's music tonight? You know, blah, blah, blah. So next thing you know, and this is all the same conversation. I said, well, you know, there's some real cool buildings for sale. Because he was going to move his museum. I'm sorry, I didn't tell you. He opened a rock and roll museum in the Netherlands. Okay. Uh, kind of small, part of his collection. <clears throat> So he was going to move it to the U.S. and open it in Memphis was his plan. 
the stuff was really expensive in Memphis, the places that he wanted to be. And so I said, oh, we've got some buildings down here. So I hooked him up with Bubba O'Keefe, who today, not then, but today is now our tourism director. And Teo took a look at the building. Bubba assumed this is not going to happen. Next morning, a Saturday morning, he gets a call from Teo and he's like, I want to buy the building. You know, he's like, what? He's like, do you want to think about it? No. So he opened the Rock and Blues Museum uh, in maybe, I want to say 2005, 2004 or five. Uh, Unfortunately for us, he when he hit 70, the deal with his wife, this is just you know a year or so ago, was that because she was running the nonprofit that he would retire truly from everything. So right now the museum is for sale. Um, but I say all that to say he is a massive music fan, very knowledgeable. He is a character. He's hugely entertaining. He will, you're going to end up doing a four-hour show, though, because he will talk. That's fine. That's uh, fine. He doesn't use uh, periods in his sentences, basically. Um, let's get the pug over here. Oh, yes. This is Eiler. Eiler, Eiler will you come over here? You want to come out here? You're not really supposed to. That's okay. Well, no, we don't need yeah, to break okay. the rules. Um, okay, well, uh, that's it. Do you have any final thoughts? Oh, Thank you for doing this. I mean, oh, this absolutely. Is, yeah, yeah. This is amazing. So if people hear this and they're like, well, that guy's kind of a bozo, but that place sounds cool. Um, in terms of Clarksdale and things, uh, they can go to visitclarksdale.com. That is our tourism website, and there's a lot of great information on there. Also, cathead.biz is my store website. Obviously, you can buy some things, but you can just go to the music calendar page and the Clarksdale guide page and get more of an idea of what we're doing. And then again, our next festival is Juke Joint Festival, J-U-K-E, uh, in April, and that is jukejointfestival.com. Okay, and if uh, I'm going to go walk around the store and take some pictures, oh, so sure. so people find us on Instagram, find us on Facebook. Thank you, Roger. Hey, thank you. I really appreciate. it. I enjoyed it. We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Calligan is online content producer and periodic host. Chris Duff is his executive producer. Our theme song was created by Dave, Dave, Dave Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. For my parting tune this week, I'm jumping back to the late 80s in Fort Myers, driving around with my old buddy Melty in his super sweet 1968 Jeepster. I'm going there because he and his family were my destination on my road trip to Texas. They've lived in San Antonio for a decade, and I'm so lame I hadn't paid a visit yet. So I decided to give him and our collective memories a bit of attention, and this song immediately leapt to mind. Imagine two teenage boys driving around in a bright green Jeepster with a banging sound system built for bass, jamming this song from the movie Cocktails soundtrack with very few, if any, cares in the world. Such good times. Keep listening. Next time on Three Song Stories. It's been three years. Three years Unbelievable already. to yeah, think. 156 episodes. <laughs> what a year. <laughs> Season three of the show was the pandemic arc. Yeah.